Welcome to the Jeff Gross Podcast. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Party Poker. Go to PartyPoker.com to play tournaments, cash games, and improve your poker game. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear all of my future episodes. Welcome, everyone. We are joined by a very special guest on another edition of the Flow Show. We got Patrick Leonard over in the UK. Pads, how's it going? Good, bro. Good, bro. Good, good to be here. I know it's a morning for you, but it's also almost a morning for me. Like I'm on, I'm on probably the same uh, schedule as you are. You know, just like five hours ahead. So I probably wake up at the same, the same time. Like we probably wake up. You know, get in line at the same time. Just you're like five hours behind or whatever. So. Um, yeah, I well, it it is. I will say this is the earliest podcast I've done. I'm happy to do it. You're you're making a joke about you know 78th the most important podcast. It doesn't work like that. This is I think that goes better. The the further along, the better, and you know more energy and more um, refined they get. So I'm I'm glad you're here. Thank yeah. you for for coming on. And I guess you know a lot of people in poker are going to know who you are, but give a little background on. I guess your uh, your upbringing, your journey, and, and what got you into poker, and then and then we'll go from there. Just some people may not be as familiar with you if they're not in the in the poker, but if you are in poker, you know you know who you are. But give us uh, give us a background. Yeah, so um, from I'm from Newcastle, which is in the north of England. Uh, started playing poker when I was like 16, 17, uh, with my friends who are all better than me. I'm very competitive. I hate to lose, and I used to lose every week. So I just learned how to beat my friends in a home game and then I was like okay I never really like to settle I used to play football and I would never like to settle at the same level I'd always want to go like a slightly level ahead so once I could beat my friends I wanted to go to kind of the next uh, stage which was going to be like the local casino I went to the local casino and just got smoked and just had no chance so I learned how to beat the guys in the local casino and then once I could beat these guys who didn't really study or they were just like old men, whatever, you know, they, it was just like a hobby for them rather than like a job or anything. I went to online poker. It was like a new challenge. I lost, you know, every time I played. Uh, and yeah, I, I learned how to, you know, start to win online. And then I would uh, always go to kind of the next steps. So I would go to like a UK championship, like, a, you know, like a 500 pound buy and then I would do terrible and, start to learn how to get better there then as things went on i would go to like epts i think i didn't cash in my first 20 epts then i learned how to kind first of 20 you didn't cash in one yeah i think i think it was something like 20 yeah it was a brutal it was a brutal brutal run uh then i'd go to like vegas i didn't cash in i think probably 30 tournaments that are in vegas and learned how to do that then yeah online you know uh the higher stakes would lose first and get better etc etc so always Poker started from the bottom and basically always went up a tier every, you know, every six months or every year, whenever it kind of I got to the top of the tier I was at and uh, always failed first or uh, and then always just kind of put in the time to kind of learn how not to fail. Because um, I just it doesn't matter if I'm playing, you know, against my mom at chess or my dad at Monopoly or my girlfriend at tennis, whatever it may be. I just hate to lose. Uh, yeah. So. All of these different tiers of poker, I just couldn't give up. I wanted to just get to the next tier. Um, not really from a financial point of view or anything. Just um, it was like a challenge. It's like a game. You know, you play like I always used to play like Crash Bandicoot and these kind of like computer yeah. games, and you'd get like addicted to the game, right? And you all the addiction was always to like get to the next level, like beat the next end boss, and uh, that's kind of how poker always was to me. It was just a game, you know, like it was just a hobby, and it was lucky that 
you can monetize that hobby. A lot of my friends are amazing at things like piano or they're amazing at, let's say, Call of Duty or whatever it may be. And I'm just lucky that my hobby is a one where you can make uh, decent money. Whereas, you know, my friends who play the piano or play X, Y, or Z, unfortunately for them, they are just as good at that as I am at poker. But it's just, I'm, I'm just lucky that poker is, um, is a money game, you know, essentially. So, in, so in what, what, um, what gravitated you toward that? Because, you know, also I played a lot of board games, video games, always like games, same thing. It's like I, I, there was a famous commercial in the U.S. Uh, it was a Sprite commercial and the guys were playing video games and the, the guy like twists the cap and then, you know, the guys are winning the video game and he's like, what, you know, what'd you win? It's like, what, what do you win in a video game? Nowadays there's esports, there's all kinds of stuff going on. But you know, back then it was like, you're not winning anything playing a video game. You could learn some skills and, 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 and cognizant reflexes and just all different things that are oh, decent with games, but you couldn't actually win money. Now, you know, was that was that the allure? Was that why poker? Like, why do you think you versus your friends got into poker? What was the, the key moment for you to say, you know what, I'm going to go forward and, and, and dive into this this game? Like, what, what made you actually go for it? So the education system in the UK is you go to like, uh, like school with your friends when you're uh, like five years old till, say, 16 years old. And then when okay. you're 16, you choose like a specialist area which you want to go into. You can either stay at school for two years you can go to learn plumbing. You can go to learn um, whatever you want to learn. And basically, when I was 16, I left school and went to do like a sports kind of degree. Like I was playing football and or soccer, as, uh, as, as you would say. Yeah, and, get, let me interrupt you. You're at a high level. I, I, I've seen it. We got a clip review from the World Cup of Vegas with all the teams, which is fun. We compete every year. What, what, where were you playing at? Like you were actually almost pro or were you in a youth system? What was your, what was your uh, soccer or football um, trajectory at that time? What was going on then? Yes, I was always, I was always decent. Um, I'm not sure. I wouldn't say I was like naturally good or anything like this. Like I don't have like a athlete's physique or anything like this, but my parents were very, very supportive. They would like my friend's parents would, you know, take them once a week to play football or like twice a week to play football, which is like, you know, normal standard, like what most parents do with their kids. But yeah. my parents would drive me around from six years old until like 18, seven times a week. I'd play, I'd play football basically every day. Um, wow. Then when I got to like 14, um, I went to a running, I didn't like school. I never, I never want, I never studied. I never like, listened in class and when i was 14 there was a chance to take an afternoon off school to be uh, go to a running competition and my football coach said oh you run a lot in the games like do you want to come and like do you want to come and run and i was like oh if i can get out like science or like art then sure so i went to this running tournament it was like every kid in um in like the the whole of the northeast which is like a huge area like england has northeast northwest southwest southeast london kind of thing so like a quarter of the country let's say or like um a fifth of the country and i was expecting you know just to like come not last but you know probably bottom half or whatever and somehow right. i came second in this race and i was like i had no like i i had no right to come second i i these guys' legs are like twice as long as mine or whatever. And that yeah. kind of just came because my parents basically not made me play sport, but encouraged me to play sport every day from like six to like 15 or 16, whatever it may be. Then I had to decide whether I wanted to be a runner or a footballer. I was kind of, um, 
I was good at football, but I was probably better at running. Um, even though I'd never ran before, or never went to like a coaching or anything like this, I was kind of just more naturally good at running than football. I would say I was kind of right. coached to be a good footballer, but I was naturally good to be a runner. So then when I got to like 16, when you start having like clubs and stuff like this and like amateur football, like where you can start getting paid for money, um, I basically combined two, the two. Yeah, there's this, uh, there's this uh, free kick in the show now. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that was, there's a little little magic there from, from the UK and the team in the, the Summer World Cup of Vegas. Um, yeah, that, that uh, so yeah, I saw that a little flash of brilliance there. And uh, that that's awesome. So you were, you were, you were into the sports. Your parents were very supportive and they, they sort of got you, they were just, they were pushing you or helping you, supporting you. Was that the case with poker? How did that conversation go? When you so when I, was 16, when I was 16, I basically left all my friends at school and went to try to take like full-time sport, whether that was going to be a full-time po- uh, football player, whether that was to be a full-time coach or manager, whether that was to be a full-time runner. Um, my goal at 16 was basically leave uh, school, leave the education system. Um, or build my education system around sports. So I was learning like sports science, um, sports nutrition, sports exercise. Um, you know, I would, I would be running, you know, like 10, 15 kilometers every day, like playing football every day. So like my whole life was around sport. But obviously my friends, I still wanted to see my friends after school and stuff, right? So at that time, they were like, they were doing like economics or whatever else. And in between classes, they would be, instead of playing sport they would be kind of um playing poker together at school and they were starting to really i guess this was around about the time of the moneymaker win they were starting to like on a friday night instead of going um drinking or going to cause trouble they would play poker and i wasn't really interested in it at all like i was just really into sport at the time but they were like oh come on let's uh, hang out on friday night or saturday night and i was like well i'll come along and just you know like donate 10 pounds or five pounds and right. just just to see my friends it was almost like an admission charge just to catch up and stay with my friends and not like just fall out of the kind of social circle let's say um, so you were I, when you were playing with them though you weren't just like instantly it wasn't like natural where you were winning or doing very well in the first bit you didn't just come in and just pick it up and 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 were, were it was literally just social fun whatever you weren't really trying to figure it out or were the second you saw you sat down live was it like all right this is amazing like i see there's a skill there's an edge potentially there's work yeah. that can be done or it didn't cross your mind at that point i mean i didn't really um they, they played maybe like they were playing every day for like hours and i hadn't played at all for like a month and they were like oh we played this poker game like you should come and play so they'd maybe played like 60 times before i played once so the first time i played i got knocked out on the first time and just like went home i was like this is this is this is not for me um, but as they kept, um, as they kept basically playing every Friday, I was like almost forced to go back because I wanted to keep seeing my friends. I was like, well, if I'm going to play, I may as well try to get a little bit better, you know? So, uh, I started slowly like enjoying things that they like spoke about and laughed about. So like they would like, if someone raised on the button, on the button, they would basically start, or if someone, if someone got the button faster than like they were in the small band and moved to the button, they would start like to, oh, they would like hold the button up and be like, oh, I've got the button now. And I was like, I was like, what does that even mean? You know? And uh, if maybe like they, an A-side board came out, they'd be like, oh, you know, and I'd be like, well, what's so special about like an A-side board? So I started slowly getting 
intrigued by their like enthusiasm about like small parts of the game. Like to me, I thought we were just gambling. Like you know, we put the money in, whoever wins wins. But as they started to slowly, um, slowly like express interest in these like small nuances of the game, I was like, oh wow, like maybe there is something about it. In football, I. I, I was always, you know, like kind of a captain and like the strategist in the game. I wasn't the guy, you know, like crunching tackles or winning headers or like uh, like in, in the game for my physique. It was more about kind of, you know, the strategical part. How I was, I was brought into football or soccer when I was like six. So I, I understood the game from like an early age. So like I always enjoyed, you know, like how to do like uh, X, Y, Z, like counter pressing or how to press as a team or how to build up from the back, whatever it may be. Um, like most people in England get their coaching badges when they're like 40 or 50. I started getting them when I was like 16, 17, you know, it's like, I always had a big interest in terms of uh, strategy behind things. As soon as my friends started telling me there was a strategy behind poker, I was like, really? I was like, oh, well, that's interesting because I'm going to make sure that I understand that strategy better than you because I, I, they were all like, not laughing at me, but like, they knew that I was like the worst player. And that was, to me was, I was always you know, when, when we played in school and stuff, I was always, like, the better player at football. I hadn't really been used to being, like, the one everyone laughed at or the one people would pick last or anything like this, you know. So I was, like, not taking it offended, but I was like, okay, well, I'm going to make sure that if we're going to play this, I'm going to be competitive at least, you know. And, uh, yeah, then... I, I want to interrupt you about, because I, I find it very interesting. I do see similarities, and I guess you could apply it. I really think poker is one of those games you can apply to anything, sports, life, lessons, uh, little little bits and bobs. But what for you, you know, because I, I played soccer through college. I'm very familiar with the game and and also similar position, similar sort of uh, sort of uh, the way you're describing. You know, I wasn't same same type of role and how I played and, and my, my style. How would you say – soccer football if you will how does that apply to poker what 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 sort of similarities or strategy sort of a mindset do you think that you can apply within poker and and soccer how do they how do they sort of translate together sure. there's, there's, there's a lot so like uh you, you know there's, there's parts of poker where you have to really attack so you know when you have the let's say you're playing on a football pitch where the the, the pitch is like uh downhill or like it's it's not flat you know if you're kicking downhill you you attack you know and most amateur football is not played on perfect pitches. It's played on bad pitches. So if you're kicking kind of downhill or if you have 11 men against 10, then you attack. And that's kind of like when you're playing on the button or the cutoff. If you kind of have your back against the wall, you have more of a defensive strategy. Like if you're, from the, if you're playing from the big blind, it's more, you know, trying to just lose the least. And when you're playing football and you're trying to defend, it's about not trying to score. It's trying to not concede, you know. But then sometimes maybe you're losing and things are going really bad. And you have to go like all in and really go for it. That's like if you if you have five minutes to go or ten minutes to go in the game, you have to really you know go for go throw everything trying to accumulate goals, right? And it's the same as poker. If you go to a short stack, you have to take risks, you know. So it's kind of like weighing up risk and reward, when to attack, when to defend, weighing up like yeah, like risk and reward is um That's- definitely. Very interesting. Yeah, I would. I, I agree with a lot of what you said. Some of like that. Some of those last bits you said. That's it. I never really thought of it exactly like that. That's that's interesting. Do you find yourself in a tournament with? Because uh, I know you're a big fan of of football. Do you do you, do you like visualize when you have a certain stack? You're like thinking of games or comebacks or like like you do you apply and do you like do you find yourself equating situations or, or how do you? Uh, I've never heard it like that. I actually really like that. Is that something that? You, I've, I think I've the opposite never of roles. 
I think almost the opposite. When I'm watching football, I try to apply like poker strategy to the football strategy. So like, for example, in the Premier League now, because of coronavirus, you're allowed five substitutions, you know? It's like straight away when something new happens, I'm thinking, like imagine you play poker, like short deck comes out. You try to think, okay, how do I adjust the Mm. short deck? So when like five subs come out straight away, I'm thinking, how do you adjust the five substitutions? Because the Premier League managers right now, they're all bringing the players on at the same time as what they did before, like 70th minute, 80th minute, 60th minute. Whereas straight away I was thinking, well, surely the best exploit is like get your striker or get your midfielder to like go flat out for the first 45 minutes, not conserve any energy, then make an earlier substitution. Maybe make a substitution after 30 minutes, you know, like tell your players to really go for it, try to get a lead and then you can control the game. Um, So I was thinking about how managers may have approached it. Um, but managers basically didn't really do too much difference. So like, I was thinking, am I just really far off? Or it's like, you know, football coaches now play very differently to how they did 20 years ago. Everything always evolves. Uh, and I think kind of post-coronavirus, the evolution of these new rules haven't really been as quick. Whereas in poker, you, you have to adapt or like evolve instantly. Whereas I think in, in football or in soccer, it's actually taken like longer than I would have imagined it to take. So. I don't really think of football when I watch when I play poker, but when I watch football, I think of poker a lot about how I approach poker in those ways, or like exploitative versus you know right. like theoretical. Like okay, like what is the theoretical approach for Liverpool to play, and then if they're playing a, a bad team, how are they then trying to exploit um, exploit it basically? Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. A lot of similarities. I also, I agree. I mean, it makes sense, right? If you have a new, the new set of parameters, new set of rules, there's gotta be, it's gotta be a little different. There's gotta be a way to, to do better. If you're giving, you know, it does matter in terms of energy and, and I guess it, it, different teams are going to want to do different things with that, but for sure there's, it shouldn't be the same, you know, it shouldn't be the exact same uh, calibration. Yeah. All right. Well, um, a lot, I think you're one of my first guests that, that plays poker, at least that does not have their first Hendon mob, result i think we're like at 97 percent made a final table on their first ever cash so i'd like to get some hooks so you know cheers for sticking in the game i I think there's something to that that people hit that first final table and they're just like all right this is the best thing i'm gonna play poker you you got a 47th maybe a little deeper field than what uh a lot more you know more players this is a 550 do you remember this first tournament do you remember was this your first ever live tournament or had you played live tournament before and got knocked out do you remember that, Hendon Mob? Yeah, so at this time, I was living in Spain, working uh, as a poker consultant. So, like, the stuff I do for Party Poker now, working with Rob and the guys, I was basically doing this as a job for, like, Stars, Full Tilt, Party, or iPoker, etc. And in our company, we used to have, like, VIPs, you know, like, guys who would play for the... And, like, we, we were, like, an affiliate, and they would break for the... Um, they would break for the company. And basically the guy who was the highest raker was always Russian and he won a World Series of Poker package, but he didn't have a visa to go because he was from Russia and there was some visa issue. And William Hill at the time, they were like, oh, well, do you want to send two of your staff members? We'll just give the package to the staff members. Obviously it should have went down to like the third place, whatever, but they just give it to me and another VIP guy. So we went to Vegas and, uh, we went to Vegas for like a week and uh, played there. Yeah, I mean, I, I never played tournaments. I was always playing cash games. Um, so I this was the first, you know, I think I went to Vegas and played four tournaments and uh, or three tournaments, whatever. And uh, I'd never played tournaments. I was just, just a cash game player. So 
Um, and, and how was that first trip to Vegas? Was that your first trip to Vegas or your first time playing poker in Vegas? Time as in America. I was only 21, I guess, at the time. It was 2011, so yeah, I'm 31 now, so I was like just turned 21 or like 22 or whatever, so yeah. Well, I, you're the number two uh, all-time, I believe, or number two. No, no, you're the number two current ranked uh, poker online. I don't know if you're number two. Do you know where you – in terms of online um, earnings, I guess, do you know what you're up there? But you're number two currently in the – You've been as high as number one. I mean, you're number two at the moment. Explain what that means a bit for those that don't know. Like, how does that work? It's sort of like, I guess, the equivalent in the U.S. with the BCS, right? There's a rankings. There's a formula, just like the the Hen and Mob ranks for for live events for online based on buy-in results and all that. So, can you talk a little bit about what that means and 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 uh, uh, where you're where you're at now and and how that works with the with the leaderboard? Yeah, so it's not as pre- prestigious anymore as it used to be. It used to be very, very pre- uh, prestigious when I was, I was really going for it hard in let's say 2004, uh, sorry, 2014, 2015, six. I mean, even today, I'm still going trying trying to go hard at it. And I think I've always um, been, you know, in the top ten, uh, maybe like drop down to like 15th or something once or twice when I went away for a couple of months. But for me, success in poker isn't necessarily being like number one or number two or number three. It's kind of like if I could stay in the top 10 for like 10 years or five years or seven years, to me, even if I was like eighth for like 10 years, to me, that's more success than being like first once or second once, you know, like I really wanted to get first um one time like at the very start because i wanted to like show my parents and my friends that i wasn't like a degenerate gambler or whatever and that like this was like a real thing that i was doing and i was working hard you know because when i was really going for the start i didn't have money or anything i was just you know in my office studying you know like 50 60 hours a week playing every day so like my parents or friends didn't see i wasn't rich from poker or anything and they just knew i was playing poker but not really understanding what was going on you know so to tell people that okay, I've made number one in the world. That was like a first. That was like a big milestone to get to. Then after I got to number one, my my next goal was kind of like longevity. Like success in poker to me is longevity. So like being around for a long time. And yeah. I I basically looked at all the pocket fives winners for the five years before that I got number one, and I realized that they were they all left poker or become losers or kind of uh, just quit or moved on to something else. But I knew that I loved poker and I wanted to stay around and my goal was to have longevity in poker and I wanted to make sure that I was still in the pocket fives rankings in six years, seven years, eight years, whatever it may be. Um, so yeah, I basically, uh, I'm number two in the world now, but you know, it's not based on profit alone. There's some guys who may not have like certain screen names tracked or whatever. Um, I got a lot of my points also from a big score on GG, which uh, is profit. So like for me, kind of my points versus um, profit will actually like stand out quite well. But I could definitely have got to number five by being a losing player, you know. So like, I could have just cashed, played every day, cashed a lot and not profited much and still being in like the top 10, top 20. Um, yeah. I want to ask you on that before just thinking on that. What do you feel in poker with that? Because there's been thoughts tossed around and because uh, it is a little bit funny on the Hendon Mob, especially for the live. And there's all these 25K nows, 50Ks, 100Ks, there's a million pound. So people that could have like 50, 20, 30 million in earnings may not even be profitable or, or whatnot. Yeah. What do you 
do you believe there should be something or is there a reason why it doesn't do that? But like, it would, it would seems like it would make sense to show. Um, I see reasons why both are done or wouldn't be done, but what, what do you think on that? Like to show your actual profit, or I guess that that would be complicated for online and with taxes and this, and then, you know, people are reentering and all these different, it'd be complicated to, to keep track, I guess, or understand that. But what do you think on that? Cause it, it would be curious to see uh, both live and online. What, what actual ROI, like what the real, winnings and, and losses are because that like to your point it doesn't necessarily mean you're the most winning player you could just play everything you know so yeah you- but also i also think um just because you have the most profit doesn't mean you're also um the best player you know so like sure. if someone's gone from say let's say a guy's gone from playing one dollar tournaments to playing a million pound tons where people will stake him who the people who stake him have to really understand poker well to put them into this tournament and then let's say he loses that million pound tournament. Then let's say there's somebody else who just gets rich, plays a million pound tournament and cashes for say five million. I don't think the guy who cashed for five million is necessarily better off or a better player than the guy who didn't cash, who'd worked his way all the way from one dollar to a million dollar buy-ins. You know, like there's a lot of success about playing these tournaments because you have to get yourself in these tournaments one way or another. How well you run over like a 20 game sample of a million pound tournament is like, it's not down to you, you know, like you can't dictate that you're going to win your ace kings versus jacks or whatever it may be. But if you can get yourself into the position to play these tournaments, I think that's what shows the hard work and that's what shows your achievement and your success, you know. So like, although I do think profit's obviously important and like it's, I think your overall profit will always be dictated based on how well you run it your higher state game so like let's say i play 12 months over the, ne- over the next one year and let's say i absolutely demolish 100 dollars buy-ins and 200 dollars buy-ins and 530 buy-ins but let's say i don't cash the big game for one year let's say i don't cash any wpt 10ks let's say i play in stars and don't cash any 5ks or 2ks that they have like let's say i cash some but like i run very badly even though like i've really crushed poker that year I've just run poor at like a higher at the high games. Um, so I think it's very a little bit dicey about like how poker should be kind of uh, seen as being successful yeah. or not successful not successful. I think if you're in the highest games um, and people are staking you for them or you've got yourself in a position to play them yourself, I think that's a big sign of success. Um, I think if you win at the highest games, I don't think that's necessarily a sign of success, you know. Talk to me a bit about mindset and how that works. Let's take a Sunday now across, you know, party poker, obviously unbelievable schedule. They got the world poker tour, hundred million guarantee already underway. Um, how do you deal with that? Because it's kind of crazy. Well, give me like your, give me a Sunday, typical Sunday. What's your minimum buy-in and your maximum buy-in on a Sunday for a tournament of entry? So, so I change, I change my mind on a lot of things. Basically I, I feel a lot that, it's very difficult to play five days a week. Let's say you want to be a full-time tournament player, like you don't have like sponsorships or whatever. Let's say you want to play t- tournaments full-time and study a lot and really dedicate yourself to be a tournament professional. It's very difficult to play buy-ins which are 10 times higher than your average buy-in because your whole week will depend on that buy-in. So like, let's say I win, let, let's say someone wins like 250K a year playing tournaments, right? Like that's like a really good that's a really good return. Like you're, you're going to be like one of the best players if you're making 250k a year playing online tournaments. It's not easy to do, you know? 
So like that means you make $5,000 a week. So let's say you work really hard Monday to Friday and you make that $5,000. Then let's say on Sunday you play the big game twice and now and you don't cash and now you're down $5,000, right? So the next week it's really hard to register the $55 tournament on a Monday or the 109 tournament on a Wednesday because a lot of your success just comes down to how well you run in these high environments. So like I, I genuinely believe for like 99% of people, they should sacrifice the the tournament, which is the most expensive they play every week, because it's going to have such a big impact on their mental game for the week, their motivation for the week, how how well they can put the volume in for six months, 12 months, etc. you know? Um, it, it's, just from running bad, but also from running good, you know? Like if they win... It's super interesting to say that because it's also I play, you know, cash games uh, and and sometimes I get to play like a really special game, like, a you know, ridiculously bigger buy buy and it's the same principle, right? You go play a huge cash game. You're normally playing, let's say, 2550. You play 500 1K. And that could be your whole year. Like you might not. I might get to play a game 1K, 2K once a year or something. And that literally it's hard to go back and play a 10 20 or 25 50 right because it's like if you if you lose a huge number there how do you go back and just like put in your normal work so i think with that being said you know and, and for myself definitely when i play a much larger game or tournament i am selling action or you know i'm offloading trying to offset it i think that would be a, a good way to look at it or probably do it either you satellite in uh, is one way to do it or you could sell action on a platform or to your friends and yeah. then kind of hedge it because you don't want to you like to your point you don't want to put all of it and it's just sort of mentally not doesn't work like that you can't just lo- leave everything on the line or you shouldn't i mean i guess that's not gtl or kelly criterion to uh to put it put it like that so i think that's a that's a very interesting point you could say the same for cash games you just don't want to put yourself in a position where you're you're going to throw off your whole your whole ecosystem your whole system and and uh I mean, in terms of putting it all on the line, I think it completely depends. Like, I think the biggest regret I have in my career or my life is that I didn't put more on the line when I was, say, 22, 23. Like, I got up to, like, a couple of hundred thousand uh, dollar bankroll, like, quite quickly uh, through luck. And at that point, my whole – because I'd gone from, like, $2,000 to, say, $300,000, like, way quicker than I should have done – when I got to three hundred thousand dollars, I was like, "Fuck! I need to protect. I can't go back to two thousand. Mm. I need to protect, yeah. and stabilize the three hundred thousand dollars." But really, I was playing and studying all day, every day. Poker was everything. I should have went all in. And I used to, I used to watch videos of like Bryn Kenny doing interviews about how he went from zero to two million, and I was like, "Fuck! I would. What is this guy doing? He's he's completely approaching it the wrong way." But now looking back in hindsight, like ten years later exactly what i should have done you know like because i i would have always gotten back to like a hundred thousand bankroll or two hundred thousand whatever it may have been i could have I, I should have backed myself enough that okay if it all goes wrong i can get back to where i am now that's fine but i should really go from i don't have a family i don't have a mortgage you know i don't have kids like i have no responsibilities poker is what i'm really good at it's what i'm spending all day every day thinking about working on etc like let's really try to go for it you know um there's so many opportunities where like i took 10 percent of myself or 20 percent of myself in the tournament where i should have just taken 100 
because like if I lost, let's say I had like a five hundred thousand bankroll and I was playing a ten thousand dollar tournament, like to me losing the ten thousand dollars was like I don't want to lose ten thousand, you know, because I'm going to play two fifteens tomorrow. But going from four ninety to five hundred or five hundred to five ten, like it doesn't really matter. But going from five hundred to say two million, that's such a big difference, you know. So like, there's so many times where maybe I stayed and played online like a wednesday session in on stars and full tilt at the time where i should have just flew to say vienna or the bahamas or whatever and really try to win a big tournament you know and like usually it's not going to happen and i'm going to lose you know like two percent of my bankroll but the times where it does really go well i'm going to go to that next level you know because like i really think Bryn. i always thought Bryn was wrong here and i thought not that he was an idiot because i knew he was smart but i always thought that Bryn was like like, he's so reckless and he's a degenerate and he's a gambler, but he wasn't a, I don't think he was, he was like that. I think he was very smart how he did it. He was really going for that big, big, big score and that big run, you know, and he, he has so much self-confidence and he really backs himself. And I think the people who don't do it, they, like, when, when I got this money, I went to see a financial advisor when I was, like, 24, and the financial advisor was like, you know, put your money here, make 5% a year here, like, be yeah. safe here. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's really good. I'm going to be set. There's no way I can go broke in the next 10 years. I'm just going to go up like this really nicely. And when I'm 30, I can, you know, have enough money to retire or whatever, or like be okay, be comfortable. But Bryn was like more like, no, I don't want to go like this. I want to go like that. And and if I do go back down, then I, I can get back there. You know, like it's not, this getting to here is not the difficult part. It's getting to like up here, which is very tough, you know. And I just never... I think we're conditioned from an early age, like not to gamble, not to take risks. Like we're not really taught like risk and reward, you know, like the people who mentor you when you're 20 are usually like 21 year olds or 22 year olds. It's a person who's just ahead of you. Whereas the people who I needed to be giving me advice when I was 20 were the people who were 30. Like I was thinking about writing, I was thinking about making a book or getting a, writing a book and not being the author, but being like the designer of the book. So basically chapter one would be a 20 year old writing about what advice you'd have for an 18 year old chapter two would be a 25 year old what advice you'd have for a 20 year old chapter yep. three would be a 35 year old advice for a 25 year old like, because when i'm 20 I, I don't really know like what i should be doing but the guy who's 30 like right now i've made all the mistakes that a 20 year old could make you know like i have all that experience like i'm in a really good position now to give advice to a 20 year old i'm not in a good position now to give advice to a 30 year old yeah like, i have year olds asking me like how should I do that? How should I do this? How should I do that? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I haven't made the mistakes to find out. But I think I could give really good advice to a 20-year-old poker player. Um, so, yeah, I think, like, a book like this, on li- not just on poker, but on life as well, you know, like, how to approach life in your 20s, how to approach life in the 30s. Like, the regrets I have from my 20s would be a good chapter, I think, for a lot of people. Uh, I got to give, give a shout out to Bill Perkins, and I'm sure you've seen some of the tweets and stuff going on, and you know, Bill's one of my closest friends. He's put a lot of time and effort in this book, Die With Zero. I think he would really get a, get a kick out of it. It's very interesting and sort of exactly what you're saying, talking about phases, different parts of your life, different times where you know, it's like people think you should save or not, and really it's counterintuitive, but 
you know, it's sort of like, look, when you're 30, you're going to be able to ski and go to the Alps and travel the world or do something when you're 70 or 80, you know, you're not the same thing when you give money, if you're going to, you know, whatever, that type of thought process, like explaining why there's different parts, different phases. And, you know, it's easy to just kind of go through the motions. It's easy to just sort of just say, all right, like keep going. Things are good. I want to protect. I want to save. I want to gather. But, you know, sometimes it is important to take shots or do things. But, you know, to your point, if you're 45 and you have a wife and kids, that's not time to just maybe hop into high stakes poker and just take it up and start learning. It could be expensive. When you start like you or me, when we're younger, we really don't have anything. It's like, all right, I'm grinding. I'm building from nothing. I'm not really risking that much. I don't have if poker doesn't work out or if I you know, take some missteps. I can learn, I can rebuild, I can, I can move on to something else. Whereas, you know, it's just different. So there is different phases and different, uh, yeah, different times of, of your life. So I think that's really interesting. Well said, how do you balance people? Cause you, you, you are, I would say, um, you know, you're a voice of poker, you're a face of poker. You're one of the more respected in the community. People really look to your opinion and you've done a lot. You've got stable. I want to talk about Bippy too. How do you, if someone says to you pads, you know, my dream is to play poker. I love it. I want to do it. And of course it depends what part of their life they're in, what they got going on. And you're never going to say, look, go, you know, promote, got to gamble, got to, got to play poker. It's got, it's changed now too. But how do you sort of, it's because you don't know everyone's personality. And some people have addictive personality. How do you kind of present to someone that wants the poker dream or you feel like they might have what it takes? How do you sort of, uh, I don't know how to put it. How would you ease them in or how would you manage your expectations or, or get them into poker? And what advice would you give them to sort of go through the journey of becoming a professional poker player? Like, how would you, how do you, how do you attack that without, you know, cause you are, you're a face of it and you've done well, you've done very well, but it's not for everyone. It's not going to always work like that. Right. People, you don't just start poker and just like professional sports or anything. Not it doesn't work out for a lot of people. So so how do you kind of be careful and show this lifestyle? Show that you know you can do very well and ma- make a living on poker, but just realize that that won't be the case for most. How do you uh, sort of balance that? Or, or uh, you know, yeah, not- I, I, I would basically never advise uh, somebody to do it. Um, like like I, I have like a stable, right? So I have like big sample sizes of like data sets. So right. the data set always goes from like bottom left to top right. So you always have in, oh, it should be there, like uh, how you said, you always end up being, if you're a profitable player, the, the data always goes, ends up being um, profitable. So like if you have 10 guys who have 30% ROI, eventually if they play a billion games, it's impossible for this graph not to be, not to have 30% ROI, right? Um, however, if I, I, I have samples of our guys combined, where or i or even like if you take the top 10 players in the world online let's say like you know lena c darwin almerics european all of these guys if you put all of their sample sizes together so if you put all the games they've ever played together and then you look at a graph there will be samples there there will be basically groups of games over a sample let's say ten thousand or twenty thousand where as a group they've all broken even because of variance so Someone coming into poker, trying to grind their way up, there's just, first of all, they play lower stakes, so the field sizes are bigger, so there's more variance, but it's basically impossible for them to to guarantee that, it, that it's going to be successful. Um, the okay. only people who I would basically recommend to play poker or really go for it are basically amateur players who basically played as a hobby, but 
maybe won the Sunday Million, maybe won the Party Million, maybe won the GG Masters, whatever it may be. So like they've been playing recreationally and then just like won something really lucky. And now they have a bankroll to kind of like fall back on. If someone starts from zero, I would never recommend them to play poker because it's just so likely that they're going to be unlucky, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend it to people because of that. Like if my friends were going to start saying they want to play poker, I would they would have to accept. I would be like, okay, well, are you okay to break even for two and a half years, even though you know you're the best player in the field? And if they say no, then I'm like, well, don't play poker, you know, because you have to be able to accept the worst to be able to play, to be able to choose poker as a hobby or professional job or whatever, you know. For so sure. Yeah, that makes that's perfect sense. Uh, I do want to real quick before you're not a live guy, right? You're not a you, you put so much time online. You're not a live grinder. You have 2.5 million in earnings. You've had some big caches and deep runs, and it doesn't seem to play that often. But you seem to go, you know, very deep when you do play. Talk to me a bit about this little stint here in 2017. In this about four or five day period, you go first, first, first in a 25k 10k 10k what what was going on where where do you what happened there i mean that is you scored uh you know 1.2 million basically in three days what, what how do you i mean it's hard no matter what no matter how many people in a tournament especially at the high level even sitting goes it'd be hard to win that how did you do back to back to back wins and what happened here yeah so in terms of like live poker i feel like i'm a far better live poker player than online poker player um However, I don't really enjoy it. I like I prefer the process of being in my office and grinding like 20 tables rather than playing one table. So I do kind of um, I do feel like I'm better at live poker, but I don't enjoy it at all. Um, so if you, if you look generally through the Hendemov, I'll have like stints of cashing when I go to a series or or whatever. But you'll you'll see sometimes there's like two years out where I don't cash, where I just don't play. This time in 2017. Um, I was having some kind of not mental issues, but like I was number one in the world in tournaments online. Um, but I bricked kind of my last 10, 15 EPTs, whatever it may have been. And I had a blog on 2 plus 2. I think it was called, um, I can't remember the name of the blog, but I used to update it every day and I'd be playing high stakes tournaments every day. And uh, I would go to these EPTs and just not cash. And everyone would just tell me like, why do you why do you do this like why you keep putting yourself through this you're obviously not good at live tournaments like why you keep playing them just play online what you're good at like i remember like very clearly like five or six of these messages like saying you suck at live poker just play online where you where you make the money um and i hate i i hated that so i really wanted to prove them wrong so i was like okay i'm gonna go to vegas this summer and i'm gonna fucking win a bracelet 100 percent like I know that I'm really good at live poker. It's more to my skill set. I'm more like of an exploitative player than a theoretical player. And um, so I went to Vegas and I played 30 tournaments and I cashed zero. And I was like, "Fuck, are these guys right? Am I just like, am I just, am I just don't know what I'm doing?" So like, I flew home to London and I was with my girlfriend and my family and I was like, I was like, I, I have to play the main event because I won a seat, so I have to go back next week. But like, I'm just not gonna play live poker ever again. Like. I, I've tried hard. Maybe I just I'm either the most unlucky player at live or I'm the worst, you know. So I went back to Vegas. I arrived that day of the 25k in July. I was like, okay, well I'm gonna play this 25k. I won this one. I was like, okay, well maybe I was lucky. I think I played the next day or maybe two days later. Oh, sorry, the main event was the next day. I played the main event. Uh, I think I bagged like top five chips or something in the main event. 
And then the next day I played the 25k, did well, won it again. Then I busted the main event and played this Bellagio Cup, whatever it was, and won this. And for the last kind of two years or three years of playing a lot of live poker, I had it on my mind that when I have, when I win the bracelet or when I win this, I'm going to have such an amazing feeling that I'm going to prove everyone wrong and I'm going to just have such a great inside feeling. But after winning these three tournaments, I was with my friend Jason McConnon, a good friend, and we were in a restaurant and I was getting all these messages on my blog, which which people had been giving me negative messages, you know, three weeks earlier and said, oh, wow, you finally cracked live poker. Like, what have you done? What, what have you changed in your game? Like, you've just won these three tournaments. Like, everyone was asking me for, like, coaching for live and stuff. And I was like, you're the same guys who talked me down, like, two months ago. Like, you didn't have my back then, and now you're trying to, like, like praise me. Like, I did nothing differently. I just ran well over three tournaments, you know? Like, all of these, like, I was expecting to have positive thoughts. Then I, re- I just kind of realized that, you know, people are just going to judge you based on how well you run, how lucky you are. And I, I didn't, I think you can check the Hendon mob, but I think I didn't play again for, like, I maybe played once in the next, yeah, I think I didn't play again, played a couple of times, yeah, but I, I, did, I didn't go to Vegas the year after, uh, I skipped the series, like, people were expecting me to go and play, like, loads of the World Series after then, I basically played a, a few party events and made, like, a couple of local tournaments around me, but I just had no desire to play this live, live, I wasn't chasing GPI or anything like this, and it taught me a lot about life that just, like, you know, people are going to, if things go bad, people are not going to be there for you. And if things go good, they want to be there for you, you know? And, uh, yeah, I, I just, um, I realized I keep my circle around me tighter, have less people around me. I stopped blogging on 2 plus 2 after then. And, yeah, I just had my Bit B crew around me and we backed each other. If things went badly, they backed me. If things went good, they didn't, like, tell me I was the greatest or anything like this. They kept me level-headed, which, um, which was great for me. So, like, the best thing about winning these tournaments basically was teaching me about how people who are not close to me, how they're going to deal with me and how they're going to see me, uh, rather than necessarily the money. Obviously, the money was great, don't get me wrong. Um, but I think the life lesson was 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 almost better than the money, you know. Um, For sure. And and how do you deal with the let – me, let me ask how you deal with variance or, or, or how someone could approach – let's just say you do play between 200 and the 5K or – you know, 505 K buy-ins, you know, how, how, uh, how kind of frustrating or funny is that? Like you don't have an NBA player that plays one game in the, the NBA, one in the, you know, one on the, um, what the league below, or let, let's take a premiership player. Cause it's, it's easier, right? There's, there's a lot of leagues in, in the, in, in London and England. So let's say you're premiership player. You're not playing one game with the premiership, one game with the second, you know, the next yeah. division below then the third. And it's like, Oh, how are you performing or whatever at poker? How do you deal with that, though, if you're playing 500s and 2Ks and 5Ks and the game's the same, really, right? Like, sure, the 5Ks is going to be tougher competition or whatever, but how can you, you know, it's a little bit tricky because the variance comes into play there. So how do you sort of uh, be realistic with not being results-oriented over, you know, how big of a sample size is enough? And, you know, how does that, how, how come I lose a flip at uh, the 5K, but I win in the, in the 200, you know, I'm winning, running pure. So, like, how do you kind of how do you deal with that? Is it just, just uh, volume and, 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 and just understand that's how it works. Cause it, it's a little frustrating when that's how you're, you're like you said, the results are being results oriented. That's how people view for the most part is results. It comes down to, so you know, that, yeah. I, I, I have, I have trouble understanding that too. How do you, how, how, mm-hmm. how can you actually deal with that? 
you have to first of all understand it. So like first of all, like go into like uh, poker variance calculators and see like how unlucky can I potentially be. Then you have to, whenever there's a negative, you have to make a positive out of the negative. So if there's a negative that I'm going to be unlucky 80% of the times I play, you have to think, well, what is the positive behind this negative? Because whenever there's a negative, there's always going to be a positive. Whenever there's like a financial crash, somebody's prospering, you know? Like, I mean, obviously coronavirus is like the worst thing to happen, but when coronavirus happens, like some people prosper in some ways, one way or another, you know? And I think in terms of poker variants, it's so bad that it's almost impossible to deal with that if you have a hundred players and all of them are the same skill level as you, but because poker variance is so tough that when they have their bad run, 20% are going to drop out. That if you know that you're going to stick with it no matter what, then from there being a hundred good players and a hundred bad players, there's now hundred bad players and 80 good players, you know? And then after five years, there's going to be 60. Then after eight years, there's going to be 40. So like the way that I see it is that if I can deal with this variance better than this guy here and this guy there, then it's actually a positive for me. It's actually going to make my overall return on investment higher than if everyone just like cashed out their AV every single hand and every single tournament. So I kind of realized that it's good if, let's say, these guys who like to play all the EBTs and all the party stops, like if they just like are going to drop out after three years because they just haven't cashed a ton because uh, like, let's say you play 20 high stakes tournaments a year live it's so so easy to just like brick 60 of them or like lose like a million dollars or whatever it may be so like if i know that like half of the people who play the next three years are going to drop out because of the variance then that's actually like a good thing for me and as long as i trust my process and i'm going to stick with it and eventually it'll be okay I'm going to make more money from there being really bad variants than I am going to lose money from variants. You know, so that's kind of how I see it. One thing which I've always done, which everyone does, which I actually think now is bad, is swap action. So like, everyone is like swapping action and trying to like lose a little bit less. So like, let's say you lose 10k on a Sunday, but someone wins a tournament and you get 2k back. It's like a little bit of a rebate, right? It's like instead it's of losing 2K, yeah, instead of losing 10k, you lose 8k. And if you look at oh, well, I'll get 2k back. Okay, but it's still it doesn't really change that much. But like, let's say you swap with lots of people and then you have your big score because your whole ROI is based on that huge score you have. You know, it's like, let's say it might be winning the World Series Poker main event. It may be winning in the EBT. It may be winning the big game, whatever it may be. You are, a lot of your ROI comes on winning that big tournament, you know? And if when you win that big tournament, you then give out 50% back to everyone, you know, it kind of like, really shatters the score you have you know like um when i won this uh, big tournament on gg or came second for like uh you know 1.6 million i think it was i think i swapped out something like i think i maybe swapped out like 600k's worth of it so like i got like a million instead of like 1.6 million which is you know it, it's 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 still good but like let's say i was getting back like you know, 50K or 30K or 20K from them when they won the tournament. Like, it's not really making... Like, I heard Greg Merson, he swapped out, like, he said on his thing with Remco, that I think he swapped out something like five or six million of the 10 million. So, like, he swapped out, like, 50% or something. And, like, sure, when you get 50K from a guy winning the main event, it's, it's good. It's good to get that 50K back at the end of the summer. But it doesn't even make or break your summer, you know? Like, you're buying in, in the World Series, for, I don't know, 200,000? Like, the 50k is not like going to make you a huge winner, you know, but 
you know, giving away that five million when you have that really big score, I think it's like a really, I think almost the risk reward of uh, staking or swapping or whatever it may be, the swapping side, I think is actually not that good. Uh, and I, I've swapped every tournament I've played in my life in history with the same people, etc. But I actually think that it's better now in hindsight to just go 100% on your own. And you can, you, I'm still supporting the people around me that I would have swapped with. Like they're still my friends, my best friends. I'm talking poker with every day. I'm helping them get better. They're helping me get better. But I don't think you need to decrease the variance from a swapping point of view. I think it's better to basically, if variance, if variance is going to be a dictator of how well you can do in poker, just just bring it on. You know, don't try to decrease it a little bit. Just really fucking go face on and be like, okay, well, eventually I'm going to beat variance, but it may take three years, it may take five years, it may take two years, but I'll get there, but I want to have all the positives once I do get there. I'm not sure yeah. if you understand by, what I mean by all that. But. I, get, I get it completely. I guess another way to look at it, too, is you could just sell, you know, you're, I guess you're, you're putting staking and swapping the same sort of ball there, but you could kind of dictate how much, you know, what, what buy-ins you're playing then, right? And if it's if you want to play higher, you could always, you could just sell maybe, and that's simpler uh, to do, sell like a piece of it your, of your own. And in theory, it's the same as swapping, but I see your point. I think it really depends on the person and it depends on what, what stakes you're playing, right? And what, I mean, a lot of probably people that are swapping, um, you know, in your case, it doesn't matter necessarily. It's not really about staying in the game or, you know, staying alive. But a lot of these guys that play these high rollers and are on these circuits like that, that, that adds up, right? Because it's like, all right, like getting that back a little bit or it sort of just takes down what their actual buy-in is. And so I think that's part of it. But to your point, I agree. If you can afford it, and if you're going for it and putting the work in, you know, that, that is like you're only going to have so many monumental scores. And if you have to give that chunk up, um, it is going to that, that's sort of where a lot of the, the value comes. Right. You get that yeah. one score. Or I mean, in, the high rollers, in the high rollers, it's a little bit different because usually first place in the high roller buy in is like seven buy ins. So you get like if you get back one point five buy ins, that's like really good. But like, let's say Sunday million. Let's say you have like a 60K bankroll. And you're playing the Sunday Million, or you're playing a 215, which has like 200,000 for first. You know, first place here is a thousand buy-ins, you know, or 10,000 buy-ins, whatever it may be, depending on the size of it. So like, mm. um, swap it. A lot of people still swap like five percent of ten people in the Sunday Million. Where if I get back, you know, like 10k from someone winning the Sunday Million, and I have 60k, it doesn't change my bankroll that much. Like going from 60k to 70k, it's not that big of a difference. It's not life-changing. If I win 200k and have to give back 100k then that's that's a big difference if I have a 60k yeah. back. That could also mentally be debilitating, right? That might that actually may hurt you mentally. It might hurt like you, you don't think about it, but you got to think about if you actually hit it, how that looks. Uh, that's a great that's a great uh, observation. That's interesting. I, I'm, well, yeah, I, guess I, haven't really I don't, don't want to offer financial advice. I could be completely wrong here. I know I'm like I've always swapped myself, but right now I believe um, this is how I this is how I how if, especially if you're younger, 20 to 23, just gamble hard. So that if you have a huge goal when you're 23, don't give up. Don't give up a huge percentage of it. You know, um, so yeah. Very, very nice. All right, well, let's let's talk a bit. We're both. You got the I love poker hat on. I I love that hat. I love party poker. We're both representing this brand. We've got a lot of love for Rob. I know Rob Young, Tom Waters. Uh, you know that we could name, name a lot of people at party poker that do so many things and and so many positives for the game. Talk about your role at party poker. And how, how long you've been there and how did you get, um, how did you decide to go with party poker versus some of the competitors? Sure. Um, so I think when I was, um, 
I think it must have been like four or five years ago now that I joined Party, maybe four. Um, basically, Party at the time were a dead site almost. Rob had taken over, uh, and basically the whole site was kind of dead. Uh, one second. <clears throat> and I think um, there was no tournaments, so cash games weren't really running, like everything was basically dead. And I saw almost like a project, like, okay, I can, I'd done this job before as a full-time job. So like my job, like I said, when I was 20, 21, 22 was, I was a poker ecologist. So like my job was nine to five to do calls with poker sites to tell them how to run their site better. So like, I didn't really want to come in as an ambassador. I told you, I didn't, I didn't like live poker or anything like this. I, I prefer online poker. So I didn't want to come in, like wear a hat and go and play like, around the world on the circuit like that was never for me um that's why i never agreed sponsorship deals before because they always wanted me to like go to play this tournament in london or barcelona like and i was like well i'm not going to do that you know like that's not me um i thought i understood the ecosystem i thought i understood what sites did well what sites didn't do well and i could help party along their journey to kind of uh get to higher levels uh, how to approach structures, how to approach what pros wanted. I think I basically looked at sides, looked at what party did, and I saw that they charged for withdrawals, I think it was. So like if you withdrew, they, 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 they charged you money. If you had money in your account for more than three months, they charged you money. And I was like, look, I'm not going to be um, a face for a site which does this. So like, if I come in, I'm going to be very vocal. And I'm gonna not be a drama queen, but like, if you don't do this, then I'm not gonna stay with you and like hold them to ransom. I'm like, throughout my journey, if I feel like you're doing something which is, which I can't stand by, I'm just not going to stand by it. So like, if I disagree with you, I will publicly say I disagree with you. I'm not going to just take a paycheck and be that guy. Um, a lot of people will travel the circuit and you know take the paycheck, and it's that that's fine. That's good. That's what they want to do. But for me, I I wouldn't. I, I just couldn't. I couldn't do that because I'm. I'm so vocal about other sites that if I allowed party to do things and just stood by, then I feel like it would be very kind of, um, you know, hypocritical, let's say. Uh, so like, yeah, as things went on, we got more pros, you know, more ambassadors, Twitch streamers, et cetera, et cetera. So there was less kind of just me working with Rob and Tom and the guys, and there was more people like yourself who could give experts opinions on things which you knew better than what I knew. Uh, you know, you brought in people like, Jason Kuhn and Ike and these guys who could help with, let's say when short deck was added to the site. Um, if it was added when I first joined, I would have had to have like helped consult how to put short deck on the site. I don't know short deck, you know? So like having a bigger team of pros like Jason and Nikita and Ike, like these guys can also help, which is, which is great. I think now. For sure. And what's your relationship with Rob Young and, and what do you feel about what's happening? Because there's a ton of changes in poker right now. I'm just going to rattle off a few things. The the real names on party seems like a really big deal. One, I'm just going to I like I sorry, I rapid fire. I just got to throw it out the red real names. No HUDs want to cover that. Uh, and just overall with 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 Rob talk before we cover those things. What about with Rob and him taking uh, diving in? I mean, really taking some chances, which, um, you know, sort of leading right with some of these sites and people kind of looking to see what's going to happen how are people going to respond you know what what do you feel about um rob and, and his willingness to sort of just dive in and, and do what he believes is right yeah I and mean, the best thing about rob is that he really does dive in so like let's say um let's say two different sites have like an issue with bots like 
the CEO or like the guy leading or the investor, whatever it may be of, of one side, he'll be like, okay, yeah, well, you know, we need to look into bots and like he'll pass it down to somebody else and hire someone, whatever. The way Rob does it is like, okay, he hires an expert, but he will go and understand it to the to the top degree that he will understand bots and how they work better than any professional, basically any professional poker player, you know, it's so like he gets himself really to the top to understand things in, in depth, you know, so like if there's a, let's say there's a $10,000 high roller with it and we want to do a new structure, Rob will actually like play the first tournament so he understands how it plays. He will get the feeling of it, you know, it's so like he really jumps in very deeply. Um, so I think that's the best thing about Rob compared to other sites um, is that he really is kind of understanding the issue. He's not like, okay, well, people are saying we need to change X, Y, or Z. Let's change X, Y, or Z. You know, he's like, he tries to understand it before he changes it. Or if he does change it, he tries to experience the change so that he understands how the players are going to feel and experience it. So that's, how, that's what I like most about how Rob deals with things. Um, a lot of the stuff with changes, like real names and HUDs and stuff like this, um, I think with HUDs in particular, I think they don't give an advantage, really. Like, if I played against Rob in a cash game, like, a HUD's not going to tell me how to beat Rob because, first of all, you need to play tens of thousands of hands to have reliable samples uh, for delicate issues. And for the issues which aren't delicate, like VPIP or how many hands he calls preflop, like, if I'm playing against Rob, I will just feel how he's playing and how many hands he's playing. You know, like if I see him show down playing seven deuce, then I'm going to know he plays lots of hands and I make a note. So like hoods, I think of, I think the industry doesn't understand hoods really, to be honest. Right. Um, no, I, I agree with that. I, and I think, I think it's a great thing that party did. I think that, um, I think it's a bit overblown what, how that all works. And I think also the amount of people that actually can use it really well, that can break down, you know, like a jungle man, or maybe you or other people that are that could exploit turns and rivers, you know, like that are real because a lot of people use HUDs exactly that, especially when multi tabling. It's like looking at the PFR, looking at maybe it helps you when you have eight tables going and you can see, you know, in a place where it's close, maybe a little bit, but I think it is a bit overblown. Um, yeah. So interesting. And what about the real names? What do you, what's your take on that? So I think real names, I mean, I think if you do real names, I think every site should have real names, first of all. But if you're going to do real names, everyone has to play in real names. So, like, on some sites now that half the field are real names and half the field are aliases. Like, I play against uh, Elmerix and European on some sites, and European has his real name, and Elmerix has an alias, you know? And they're both up a lot of money on the site, and it's like, it's a, you know, like, people can change their name to Patrick Leonard and play on the site, and... People don't know it's a real Patrick Leonard. They can type into chat box, calling people, you know, fish or whales or when I see you in the next tournament, I want to fight you. You know, they can say that under because I can change my alias to say Jeff Gross and I'm playing and I lose a pot. I'm like, when I see you in X, Y, or Z, I'm gonna beat your ass, or whatever. You know, and I'm saying that as Jeff Gross, and then it causes it can cause a lot that's, of. Trouble, that's a know? great point as well because I have on one of the sites someone is my name and I get that I get asked in Twitch I get asked on Discord or people bring it up and I see it and it just says that and it's like yeah someone doesn't know and like when I see names too now like if I'm on a you know I look around and I see it I don't know because like it makes sense like a player might want to just show their real name if especially if they're a really good player maybe they want sponsorship and whatnot but then it's like now you're they're they're using that and it's not them and it's kind of tricky and then they have to explain like they're getting asked all the time is it them and that's that's actually i never even thought of that point as well so yeah i think that would be a 
I think that's, so that's another what happened, on, what happened in this GG tournament where I had the big score is that somebody's name in the tournament was Patrick L and they sold action at a decent markup in this selling feature that they have on the site. So someone, yeah. they made my name that alias. Okay. So they sold action in my name. And then people were messaging me on Twitter saying, oh, I had 5% of you in this 25K. And I was like, what are you talking about? I haven't sold any action this tournament. And like, people thought they had action in me. And then when I tweeted that I would win 1.6 million, people think, oh, wow, I just won, you know, X Wow. So you actually probably got like a fair amount of, like you actually had people messaging you that <laughs> legitimately thought they won even, which is crazy. Well, not they, they checked the lobby and so it was, they, they haven't been paid the money or whatever, but basically people had bought action in someone thinking it was me or somebody else, you know? Right. So, like, so it's if malicious. You to it, I think, I mean, I said to Daniel that everyone who has a real name on GG should have like a blue tick, you know, like on Twitter, you're, you're verified. So like if, you, if, if it's a real name and it's verified, they should have a blue tick so everyone knows this is actually the person so it can't cause trouble. Um, maybe they do it and I uh, give them some free consultation there, I'm not sure, but to me that's the only way you can, but even so, I think everyone should, if it's real names, everyone should just have real names, I think. Um, so I like real names, I think it brings in a way better dynamic, I think uh, people's etiquette is better, people are less likely to button people, to stall, to type stuff in chat box, they'll make the they'll make the overall playing experience better than real names, I think. There's so many internet warriors who type shit in the chat box. When you see them in live tournaments, they're, they're the biggest gentlemen that you'll meet, you know? Like, uh, it's nice that you can't hide behind that, I think. Um, For sure. I, yeah, I, guys, I just should remind you, we do have a $109 ticket courtesy of Party Poker Pads. We're going to be giving that away to be eligible. Go over to Twitter, ask a question, follow the instructions, and you'll be eligible whether we ask or answer your question. We do want to leave some time. I know Pads has got a busy, busy day. I do want to make sure we get to some of these as well. We got other stuff to cover. Uh, if you're watching live, you can ask a question too if I can put it up on the screen if we see one we like. And, uh, yeah, I guess uh, I wanted to – talk about bitby because this is uh very interesting and some of the best players in the world involved in this and i see your partners it looks uh told me if i'm pronouncing it right obviously no elermex and european uh families are definitely some of the, the better players better regarded respected players in the poker community talk to me about bitby how this came about and you know who these gentlemen are that you are that you're here pictured with yeah so um when i was just starting to play tournaments and I had this uh, like initial bankroll um, I found I, I was a cash game player and I found tournaments like relatively easy at the time um, maybe, and looking back now I was actually terrible so I believed that I thought tournaments were easy but they, they it was very different how I, I, I basically arrogantly thought that I was better than everyone at tournaments where looking back now I wasn't good at tournaments for sure like, I didn't understand short stack play or anything but I arrogantly thought that I knew tournaments better than anybody else. And I knew that the, I thought European was like the best player in the world. So I was like, okay, like European, let's come together, give our basically secret strategy to people, bankroll them and they will make money because we're making all this money. We, we know more than anyone else knows. So like, surely this will just work, you know? When was this? What year did you start this and have this idea roughly? Seven years ago, I guess now. Um, so the this was just a business, like pure business. How can we make money? So uh, I didn't know any of the players. We started staking people, and it was a business for years and years, and we did really good. But as time went on, uh, it became less and less of a business for me. Like 
in the first year, if someone won the Sunday Million, I was working out, okay, well, if he wins the Sunday Million and we give him 50%, then I get 25%, and then how much money is that? You know, so it was, this is how much, that's what it was like at first, but like in year three and year four, it was like, if a guy wins a Sunday Million, it was just like, okay, that's amazing for him. And I was not really caring about the impact it had on me financially. So you'd start making decisions where, you're just thinking about the, the player rather than yourself kind of thing. Whereas in year one, it's all about how can we maximize revenues? Like this is a business. But yeah, as you have like, imagine you have like a new office or a startup company and you hire like five staff. You don't really have too much loyalty to those staff. Like let's say those five staff stay and work in your office for seven years. After seven years, you're usually like good friends, best friends, you know, like they go to your wedding, you know, like maybe it's the godfather of your son or who knows, you know, like these people, you you socialize with them. Like if you have a startup company and you hire a guy called Brian, you probably don't go for drinks with him every Friday night. You probably don't know his wife, you know, slowly you start building that relationship up and you start meeting each other more and more outside of work. Then after seven years, you probably go for barbecues every weekend together. You may even go on holiday together, you know, so like BitBee's kind of evolved to a way where they used to be employees and now they're like our best friends. Like we actually go on holiday with these guys and they are best friends. Like if I want to speak about football, I speak with the players from BitBee. If I want to speak about um, a new movie I just watched, I speak with, speak it with them. You know, if I uh, if I get married, all of the guys will go to my wedding. Do you know what I mean? So it's like it's yeah. gone from a business. And maybe the problem as a, from a business point of view was we didn't turn over the guys enough. So we've, we've kept the same guys for, say, five, six, seven years. What we probably should have done is, like, get rid of the guys after a year, like, give them enough ammunition to go for the, by themselves after one year or two years and bring in, like, a new breed of people that we don't have, like, a not romantic relationship with, but, like, a, a long-term friendship with, you know, because right now my only interest is like how well does my friend do it's not like how well do i do via my friend because like imagine you have a friend in real life just think about a friend you have for like seven eight years like someone you're really close to um imagine your whole relationship with him was how much money he made you you know like that'd be like a really weird friendship to have right so like they're my best friends or like close friends and I just, it's too awkward for me to have that kind of, I don't want to tell them, look, like, you need to do this this week to make me more money. You need to play this amount of games next month. Your volume needs to be this amount of games. Because imagine telling your best friends in life these things. It's like, it's just, it's just weird. It's awkward, you know? Like, I don't want to have a phone call with them and bollock someone and be like, why haven't you played this week? Like, why haven't you sent me an audit? You've only come to 85% of training sessions or coaching sessions. Like, you haven't right. sent me... 10 hands this week it's like i've allowed the relationship to get to a certain point and it's my fault uh you know but at the same time i also get more out of it as well you know i have a better support system this way they push me to be a better poker player they rely on me to be at the top of the game to help them improve as players and i don't want to let these guys down whereas if it's a guy who i've never met before and i've staked for a month there's less pressure on me you know because if this guy wants to leave then you know fuck him, he can leave kind of thing you know Whereas these guys, I don't want to let down. So, uh, yeah, that's going to be evolution of the company from. And, and a, tell me, how, what's the actual, like, how does it work exactly? Let's say I, I go to the website here. Um, I want to be a part of Bitby or, or, you know, who are you looking for? Because you say, welcome to Bitby Staking, see what we do. You're, you're pushing, what is the, are you looking for, you know, who's your dream 
well, let me ask you this. How many people are in Bitby? How many current, do you, like roughly, how many, how, how does it fluctuate in terms of the people you're staking and not, and how has that changed over the years from your model? Sure. So we, we used to have maybe like 200-ish players and we'd basically drop 10 players a month and take 10 players on. So you'd keep kind of the... It's like the premiership know, relegation and, and promotion and the whole deal, right? But as time has gone on, we in the last two years, we probably dropped um, with like 60, 70% of people. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I started staking a new person in the last two years maybe twice. So we brought two new people in and a lot of people have left. Maybe they've quit poker, maybe we've, uh, they've had to leave for X, Y, or Z reason. But right now we don't take new people on. We're not this staking company trying to just take all the money in the world. The way that I see it is that they're my friends. They motivate me to be better at poker. Um, we pay for other coaches via their EV. So like, I think we have maybe like in our, like, our main group, we probably have like 20 players and like 10 coaches. Usually the ratio of coaches to player would be like uh, 10 to 1. So you'd have, two, well, 20 to 1. So you'd have like 10 players, sorry, 200 players and 10 coaches. But our ratio is 2 to 1. So we have 20 players and 10 coaches around about. So obviously that's not a, um, a business model where you can just pay for 10 coaches off 20 players. It just doesn't really work. And, and then have a lot of profit for yourself. So basically, we try to break even uh, through the coaching, through the coaches but via the players' EV. So the players essentially are just like paying for the coaches, and we're not trying to like profit a lot of money. Sure, we, we probably have like as uh, we probably do have like a little bit of a margin, um, but we're not we're not like the out the amount of hours I put in versus the dollar I get back. I would make more money. Uh, I don't know playing. Let me, let me, um, just train a thought too. Do you do one-on-one coaching? Have you done that? And, and what would be your, what's your rate? Like if someone reaches out, what would be something you would generally do for a coaching or do you just because of Bitby and then what you, all the stuff you do, you don't really do have time for one-on-one coaching. Yeah. So basically I wouldn't do one-on-one coaching with someone outside of Bitby anymore because like I said, we have 10 coaches and people are trying to give information and inside the community we want to stick inside the community so like we want to stay ahead of the game by having like coaches who will give information that won't spread you know it's like let's say i have a guy like romeo pro who's like who i thought was the best player in the world if he coaches me and then i coach like a random person where he coached me he's not going to want to coach me the same thing in the future you know like if he just finds out like imagine he finds out this like software that no one has he's like wow i found out how to play the button with 17.5 big blinds, like a very specific thing, whatever. He's going to be a little bit hesitant to tell me if I'm going to just tell the whole world, you know? So like, um, I kind of respect what uh, other people give me in terms of content and I don't want to spread it kind of that way. I think one day when BitB ends or I leave BitB or whatever, uh, I will do some kind of calls or I'll do some kind of large scale kind of, I don't know, whether it be a course, whether it be some videos, I'm not sure exactly what it would be. Um, but I don't see myself doing one-on-one coaching. It's just not a very efficient way of spending hours, I don't think. Because if I can make a video and 10 people can buy the video right. versus selling one hours of coaching to one guy, it's probably better to just make Yeah, that, that's how I feel too about Twitch or just other things, right? It's like if you can do more or be able to, you know, what's doing one hour of, for 
for more people than do of just one-on-one, it becomes a bit complicated. And then honestly, you know, I would, I don't know if you agree with this, but I always tell people whether it's, uh, again, there's, there's seven, 10 programs, maybe five or six well-regarded coaching programs, right? So it's like, if someone wants to pay you or me or whoever, whatever your hourly may be for coaching, they're probably going to get a lot more value and do at their own pace and risk, pay like a thousand dollars or $500, get a coaching program at 40, a hundred hours, 200 hours of material and coaching for the same price as like one hour with you or I or two hours. Right. And it's like, what are we really going to do? We're going to talk, we're going to review a hand. You know, it's like, it's kind of, I always recommend, I think it's more value for the, for the person as well. Well, so what, what, when is the last person you've brought on? Like what, if I, someone goes to Bitby, uh, what could they apply? Um, who would you be taking? What kind of credentials would you look to to bring someone on? People apply, but we generally just don't really accept. The last person we took on, he'll probably um, he'll probably laugh when we speak about it now. But I went to a UK tournament in Dustal Dawn, I think it was, and there was these like four guys, and they just kind of stood out to me. They played like low stakes, like I don't know, ten dollar tournaments or whatever, and they just kind of stood out to me. And I was like, I'm gonna stake these like separately myself. So I, I made like a mini stable of these three guys, or four guys, sorry. And I was like, I'm just going to coach you for free and just do this. And I just like you guys. And, you know, like, I'll stay here. I'm not really expecting to make money here or anything. And I just like you guys. Like, something about you guys I just like. And uh, these guys did it. And they had varying levels of, you know, commitment and stuff. And they all had jobs. They were working full-time jobs, had families and stuff. And there was one guy called Andy. And I just thought he had something about him that he could be in Bitby. And he would also give value to Bitby as well for his enthusiasm and for his hard work and for his success and other things in life. Like he was a, he could play golf off like a very good standard. Like he basically, he, he succeeded in what he put his mind to. And I said, uh, I'm going to end, like I did the six month trial with the guys where I just give them six months of my time and then they can then go off and play themselves. Essentially I've given them enough like, ammunition to be good poker players. Uh, but this one guy I really wanted to like join Bitby, and uh, he quit his job, and he has like a mortgage and all this kind of stuff, and he took a big risk, and he's in the community now, and uh, he, he's very well liked, and uh, he's very enthusiastic, and uh, yeah, he's he's the last person that we brought in. Before him, I can't I can't remember. I don't think I can't remember anyone else in the last couple of years. Like I said, we really have a close knit. It's like a I hate the cliche like oh we're a family, you know, because we're not a family. But, like, we are very close friends, you know, like, uh, bringing in an outsider is often it makes things a bit awkward sometimes, you know, they don't understand the chemistry or whatever. Very, very cool. And is that and, and is that something you guys have weekly calls? Do you do, like, how, how intensive is the coaching or studying? Or I guess it's change or it depends, but is it yeah, like it depends, you guys yeah. a group call together or is it, like, pockets, like, four or five in a, in a group? or? No, like everything you can imagine really so like let's say i have a epiphany about um how to i have an idea just something in my mind i will just make a video give it and upload it to the site we do uh coaching content so like group coaching like seminars uh we did a boot camp two weeks ago where uh twice a day for seven days we we basically had uh seven coaches who all pre- uh, prepared uh, different topics on different parts of the game and no one, nobody played poker for seven days, and we just intensively studied poker together as a group, like scheduled times, the same times every day for a week. This was before like WPT started, so they'd be ready for WPT. And now WPT started, and you know World Series, whatever else. Uh, 
uh, they're then not studying as much kind of uh, scheduled. But then when see when the sessions finish, like two a.m., three a.m., they'll jump on group calls together and do like cool downs and stuff like this. So like, there's just so many different ways. We have like right. hand analysis channels, strategical channels. Uh, yeah, like I have a blog where I update my blog. I used to update it every day. Now I update it every week. All the coaches have a blog. Um, so like, they get to see the thoughts of you know. 10 very, very top players like Sam Grafton, uh, Graf Teco, Sick One, uh, European, Dietrich Fast, Elmerics, um, mental game coaches. I, I'm probably missing a couple of guys out who I shouldn't be. You know, Ben right. like whoever else is. Uh, yeah. For sure. All right. Well, that's, that's very cool. And what does BitB stand for? Um, so it's kind of a weird thing. But when I was uh, 17, I made a blog called Best in the Business. And I was playing $1 sit and goes at the time. And uh, I, I, uh, I basically made this blog saying that within uh, five years or seven years, I'm going to be the number one poker player in the world. And I updated my blog every day. Like, I wanted to be the best in the business, which is BITB. And then after I achieved it, you know, number one in poker fives, uh, I basically stopped the blog or whatever. And then, then we made Big B the stable. So it was like a. Uh, a lot of people in like UK poker like kind of read the blog because I was like really trying hard to get to the, to the top, and I started from you know free rolls, one dollar singles, or whatever. So like the name Bit B kind of just stuck. Um, like people used to take the piss out of me a little bit. Like they used to call me Bit B when I was playing like one dollar singles. So it was like my blog was called Bit B, and everyone's like, oh, how are you doing best in the business? When I was like a, I was a huge whale, or whatever, you know. So like the name Bit B kind of stuck with me um, because. Uh, like almost like ironically like laughing laughing at me about it you know so i like um, it that's cool i didn't realize i didn't actually i forgot i think we did tell me that but that that i like that uh i like that name i didn't realize that's what it what it um stood for let's i know we're running low on time we haven't even got to any questions and i have a ton more i would do want to talk about the upcoming schedule there's so much happening in the poker industry um you will we'll look at your pin tweet talking about the uh the, the um the financial landscape and, and what's going on. It seems like a boom, but the coronavirus, you know, it's, it's a bit skewed and you think there could be a potential big problem. Let's talk about though, party poker, a hundred million guaranteed on the party poker world poker tour. What, it, what do you believe about that? Yeah, it looks like some guarantees have missed so far. It was an Omaha high low to first week to start. Now there's the parliament Omaha stuff this weekend. Uh, there's turbos, there's six max, eight max, different formats. It's, it's a ridiculous series. How much of that are you going to be playing? And, and what do you think about the World Poker Tour and Party Poker teaming up online? Uh, yeah, I mean, I played the last WPT. Well, first of all, I played the Irish Open, and I was surprised how much, how well, how good that was. And then I played the WPT, I guess it was like May, and that was really enjoyable. Um, and now I've been really looking forward to the WPT upcoming. Um, like, I'm, I'm quite honest. Uh, like, if I'm not looking forward to something, I just say, like, I don't play the Gladiator every night. I don't play, like, the masters every night you know like I, I i'm sure it's for some people but it's not for me to grind it every night you know i'm not afraid to, to say that like i don't play spinning goes on party or casino or anything so i don't like to try to push every product but i do genuinely believe that the wpt is like a very quality product uh first of all real names i think that's really good i enjoy playing real names second of all um there's only one re-entry which i really like I think when you're playing like prestigious tournaments and you can enter, you know, five, six, seven, three, however many times, I think it's a little bit too much. Um, what party have done is they've stopped re-entry at 50 big blinds. So like 
if you do have like a bad beat early, like you lose aces v kings, or you lose a flush draw versus a set, or a set versus a flush draw, you do you do get an extra chance to you know. Uh, or, if you just, or if you just punt it off, it doesn't have yeah. to be a core. Or, 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 or you punt it off, you know. But it's you're back in with like a reasonable stack size. What I've kind of realized is in a lot of these prestigious tournaments, if you allow re-entry to like 15 big blinds or five big blinds or 20 big blinds, everyone keeps re-entering. And then you get to like the middle phase of the tournament, which should be when it starts to become serious. But there's so many people with like 10 big blinds and five big blinds and seven big blinds that if you have an amateur who likes to play loose and play lots of pots, he's can't really play them because everyone just has like seven big blinds and they're all in all the time. You know, there's, there's not much post-flop play going on. It's, it's like pre-flop all in, let's gamble, let's gamble, let's try to get a big stack, you know? And I think in these prestigious tournaments, like when I started playing EPTs and stuff, it was all about not going bust. It was all about getting a big stack, playing post-flop, small ball, you know, like Daniel Nagano, Mr. WSOP, it's like small ball, you know, everyone knows small ball, don't go bust in the tournament. And I think the fact that WPT really pushes that and isn't really like pushed on re-entries and you can't re-enter after 50 big blinds and the average stack is always high. I think that makes playing the tournaments a lot more enjoyable. Like I play more flops, I play more turns, I play more rivers. There's more kind of maneuverability. And yeah. I think that's good both for amateurs and for pros. And people will say that I say this like because it's better for me and I make more money this way, but it's better for amateurs too who want to enjoy their experience, right? Like amateurs are, are going to lose generally if they if they um if they play shallow or if they play deep, but it starts to give an amateur more of a experience for his money, you know, like, uh, right. yeah, for me, that for me, I, I like that. Um, I like yeah. that there's a leaderboard. I've always liked Jason leaderboards. Um, I like that there's tournaments like Omaha, Ada better. Like, I mean, this is really good. Yeah, like- that was fun. I, 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 can't, I forget how much fun those tournaments are. There really is a lot of skill and thought in those. I hope I hope those start becoming more popular. I guess it's uh, it's interesting because it is definitely – a lot of people like that game, but it just doesn't get spread that often. So that, yeah. that was cool to see party a on that. It was a little bit of an overlay on some of the, the, the WPT portion, the 3200. Um, but, yeah, it was fun. It was yeah, fun. and what we're seeing now is that, you know, like – uh, six weeks ago or two months ago, all the sides were smashing every guarantee. And now we have this little crash where everything misses by like 20%, 30%. It gives now a little bit of um, there's value for everyone, you know? So like in the last WPT, everything smashed the guarantees and maybe some tournaments were tough or whatever. Now every tournament seems, looks like it has like 20% overlay, 30% overlay, 10% overlay. You're basically not paying rake for any tournament because it's all being put back in by the site, whether that be stars, whether that be um, party, whatever, you know, there's, there's a lot more value now than there. There was like value two months ago in terms of more people played, um, but the people who stopped playing, the site's basically putting the money in for them, you know? So like a lot of people think that, oh, well, all the amateurs stopped playing because they lost their money. Well, maybe that's the case, but the, the sites are still running big guarantees and they're basically putting the money in for, in for the amateurs, you know? So, like, there's a lot of value for people right now. Um, yeah, I think it's... Well, uh, I agree. And what do you think about the winning a title? Let's say now World Poker Tour, I think five tournament of champion events, 12 championship events, five, like, where you get your name on the trophy and it's a real event. Obviously, COVID... You know, things change. You have to pivot, look at sports, look at what's going on in the world, no fans, get leagues just getting started up. So things are different. It's a different time. It could be for some time. It's it's unsure. What do you think about winning a WPT? Let's take that, for example. You win a WPT. 
Does that count uh, as a, in your mind? Does that mean you're a World Poker Tour champion? And how do you think the field is more difficult to win the WPT right now, like one of the 3,200 main event coming up uh, or alive? What's more difficult? So I think the way that one of the reasons why the weeks are scheduled as they are, we have like an eight max week, a six max week, uh, an Omaha week, etc., is that you can you can really say that okay, I win the Omaha championship, or I win the six max championship, or I win the eight max championship. If you just have like WPT, 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 just random events all the time, then I think it's not as prestigious. But when you have it broken down into weeks, you can be like, well, who won the Omaha warmup? Who won the eight max warmup? You know, because in each week they have we have the same schedule. You know, we have like a warmup, we have a main event, and we have like a second chance. You know, so you can be you can really look back and be like, well, who won the Omaha warmup? Who won the eight max warmup, etc. So I like that. I think in terms of like titles and triple crowns and this kind of stuff, we have to be extremely careful. And I think limiting this to five is very good. I think giving out like fifty or sixty championships in terms of prestige, I don't think is good. I think the way that we've done it where, you know, you get the 15K watch and you get the plaque and the diamonds, whatever it may be, for like five events and there's a lot of prestige over these events, I think that's uh, very important uh, to do. And if we did it for every event that you got to watch and we give away, you know, 70 watches, I'm not sure that would be the play, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's how I see it. Very, yeah, uh, we're, we see a line on that. All right, well, Patrick, I know you have to get going soon. Why don't we try to get some questions in and then you kind of give me like a warning when the last one or two because uh, I think you set the, the course record here at over 100 questions. So we might we might have to be a repeat guest, man. I might have to just pull you back in here after after you win a WPT title or something coming up here. We'll we'll, uh, we'll do a double header. Um, all right, so uh, let's see. What are we going to dive into? There's a lot. Uh, so uh, what do you like the most about party poker? Let's start with that. Give the party some love out here. <laughs> um, I love the most about party poker. I like that I can trust the brand. I like that the things I do behind the scenes, I know are legal. I know they're legit. I know that I don't think there's a chance of like a Black Friday happening uh, because of party poker. And I think that's a big thing. Like, I wouldn't want to represent a site where they're potentially doing things which could be calls in the end of poker, you know? So being able to uh, say that everything that I say, I know that is, I, I actually believe, I think that's what I really like being as an ambassador for. What, what I like most about it is that they are not trying to milk the players, you know, like they could do re-entries till five big blinds, 10 big blinds, 12 big blinds and make so much more money. Uh, they could break out. They could do a lot of different things essentially to like look after their bottom line, and people wouldn't be able to uh, contend it because their competitors are doing the same thing. They're like, well, they're doing it, so why can't we do it? But they really stick to their principles, and I I really like that. Um, they're not looking. They're really looking after the player, and they are the site for the player. I think rather than looking after themselves, and I genuinely do believe that. I absolutely I agree. Um let's a uh, question what did you want to become as a as a child what what did you see yourself growing up as and what would you be doing if you weren't playing poker do you believe right now let's just say you pads is a as a some, poker doesn't exist or you covid i don't know you can't play like poker live or online what would you be doing so i believe that, um i believe that i would have been sport in football um i don't think i would have been a professional footballer um i think poker definitely made me a worse footballer because i 
uh, on weekends I was up late. Like in England, you play your matches like 11 a.m. on a Saturday, but I was playing poker till 6 a.m. on a Friday. So I would play a lot of matches with like two hours sleep, three hours sleep, which you know you could you, you just can't do. Um, so I believe I would have been in football. I don't think I would have been a professional footballer. I don't think I would have played a, a high standard. And I think I would have ended up dropping into being a manager or a coach at an earlier age than most people. So like most people like stop playing football at 35 and start coaching then. I believe I would have stopped playing football at like 25 when I realized that I was capped and I couldn't get to the next level. I believe I would have made my way up the leagues and to a certain point where I couldn't grow anymore as a player. Then I would have left playing and went into management. Uh, so yeah, I would have been trying because it's I, when I see these like German managers who are like 28 managing in the top league, I'm like, wow, that's like super cool, you know? And if, uh, that is that is fun. That is cool. It seems like that would be a good a good fit and possibility. I want to talk about your prop bets, what you are doing with that, but first. I want to ask you, because I think, listen, I'm 33, married, I have a 15-month-old son. If I didn't, I, I, think I, would, uh, my, I think I would probably have to just come over to the UK, join you on this mission you got coming up, and, and hop into BitBee uh, program and just dive in and, and be a manager, try to start. It sounds like you're building a franchise. What is going on? What are you doing? I saw your Instagram story. You're buying a team in some lower division. Are you gonna? Are you, is that the goal? Are you gonna buy a team, bring them up to the Premiership, and 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 that's sort of the, your ideal? What what what's what is this all about? You got going on? So if we go back to earlier in the podcast when I said I had my friends I played poker with when I was like 15, 16. Um, when we were 15, we had our own like five-a-side football team, and we were called Goat Goat FC. And this was before anyone spoke about like greatest of all time. We were just like, we randomly had this goat as our mascot. You know, like a lot of sports teams have like an animal as their like, uh, as their mascot or what they base their club around. You know, you see lots of like bears or like lions, right. whatever it may be. So we, we were goat. Uh, this was before like LeBron James and greatest of all time and stuff like this. So we had this football team when we were 15 and we played just five aside games against other teams. Then when I left uh, at 18 out of Newcastle, my friends kind of took the team to the next level of like playing Sunday league against like pub teams. And then they took up levels and levels and levels until where it is today, which is like uh, like nine leagues below the Premier League. So like we were probably like 40 leagues away from the Premier League. And now they're like nine leagues below the Premier League, which is still like a really quite low standard. Um, I'm moving back to Newcastle and I was like, well, I can take a team who are like, seven leagues below Man United and try to get there, or even six leagues below Man United and try to get there. But for me, going back to my roots, there's like a story, you know? It's like the team who I made when I was 15, and now I'm coming home to kind of like continue the journey which my friends took on themselves. You know, I'd rather do it with my friends and I can trust my friends and I believe in their vision and stuff like this. Um, so yeah, we're gonna do that. Uh, all the teams now, sorry, go on. Is there investment opportunity in there, or is that is that a uh, what what types of things do you think could catalyst to make it successful to expedite? Like, is that is it a funding thing? Is it a talent getting people to buy in? Like, how how do you build? Where do you start on that process to build it up? So, so basically, I'm a huge fan of uh, football on YouTube. So, I watch almost every team who uh, is competitive and uploads their games on YouTube. And um, you have the Premier League, and then you have the Second League, the Championship. And these teams, how many views do you think, how many views would you say that these teams get per video? Like, this, like let's say the, the second tier. So you have like Man United, then you have like the second tier. Like, how many views would you think these kind of teams get on their videos? 
Uh, I have no idea. Like in the in which tier, the bottom tier or in the no, no, like, no, like the second tier. So like teams like Fulham and like like teams where you have like forty thousand people going to watch every week. Still, I would. I mean, I would think a lot, a ton would 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 watch these videos. I would think, especially at that even at that level, because they're in and out. Like Fulham is in and out of the Premiership, right? I mean, so yeah, exactly. like teams exactly. in that top tier Premiership. I, I have no idea to guess because I don't really know like what the Premiership ones get. But I just a lot. Like I would think it would be surprisingly high. So they get like less than 5,000 views per video, which is like really low. So and if you take like tier four, which is still like professional, like very famous teams who've been around 100 years, these teams get like 300 views, 400 views a video. The engagements like for YouTube, which I really believe in, is very, very low. However, the, the YouTube teams who are in like tier 11, so like, you know, bum, 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 all the way down, not even close to being semi-professional, these some of these teams are getting two hundred thousand views every game, you know. So like, this is huge viewership. You basically, um, you can basically get like sponsorship and advertisement per video rather than just having like a sponsor on your shirt, you know. So like, a lot of the teams now league, they have sponsors on their shirt who pay for the, you know, the training and pay for the, pay for the club essentially, but the t the let's say you have a sponsor called like McDonald's, just for example. You're only going to get like 200 people seeing McDonald's, the people you play against every week, you know. But if you have 30 YouTube videos where you have 200,000 people watching every single video, then now commercial-wise and advertising-wise and sponsorship-wise, you start becoming like a, just as attractive as, let's say, Fulham, you know. Because sure, Fulham may have 40,000 people who go to watch them or 30,000 or 20,000, but online they get 5,000. So like, there's not that many people watching them. Whereas a team in uh, tier nine or 10 or 11, they can have 100,000 people watching all the time. Um, so in terms of acquiring players, would you rather be in tier seven with, a, with 25 people watching you or 50 people watching you or tier nine with 20,000 people watching you, you know, like, let's say you an ex-professional 20-year-old kid, you could be in tier six um, with like a thousand people watching you on a terrible pitch, or you could be in tier 10 with maybe 200,000 people watching you, you know, like, you can attract people in different ways, and your competition that are against you in the league, they're capped in how much money and investment they can bring in, because their business model is, we turn up every week, we wear a shirt, we have a sponsor on the shirt, and that's it my business model is going to be that we have a youtube channel and we're, we're basically the company's a media company and the football team is they're not actors but they're like the main part of the media team that we kind of push out each week you know and we start you know making players like fan favorites we start making like mini celebrities and mini influencers out of our players you know and i believe that if in Newcastle, where I'm from, it's like such a famous city for football. Like Alan Shearer, Newcastle yeah. was such a big team in the Premier League. Like even now, like we're a lot of people's like second favorite team. There's 10 YouTube teams in London who have like 100,000 views per video, but they're all in London because London is where advertising is. London is where kind of like media people are and stuff like this. But in the north of England is actually where people prefer playing football and watching football, you know? So... I'm basically taking the business model from London and taking it to an area where I think it can be more popular. 
Heads, uh, I'm in. I'm going to check with the wife if I have the invite. Uh, you know my background. I played through college. Maybe I, I pack up shop, move over there. We uh, we take over the world, man. I'm, I'm, I, it's exciting. Honestly, it gets me a little bit of goosebumps because it is. it does seem like it's, it's, it's similar to like Bitcoin in my mind and, and point of entry, but the risk reward, right? What's the upside versus downside? And similar to poker getting in at an early age or what you're, you know, Sally, if you take a team, if you buy a team in the premiership, there's a lot of downside. Imagine right now, no, I, I had a buddy who was, it's a long story, but you know, there, there was a big deal going down with Roma. They were going to buy Roma, the football club, and COVID happened, and now the numbers are all messed up. And imagine owning or buying a team last year or something, and now you're just, you know, it's massive downside, right? There's a lot, there's like a thing. You take a team from basically in the, in, the, in the farmland with no, you know, you're basically, the upside is insane. Imagine you get to the premiership or the, the, the league below even or something you build it up you could really do something and it, it, it gives me goosebumps thinking about how exciting that is so i time where do you have time how do you run bitby how do you win all the money in poker how do you study and watch youtube of all these different clubs and how are you where do you like would you sleep do you have the formula to not sleep well how many hours a night do you sleep I sleep like eight hours every night, but I, I think I'm just efficient with my time typically. Like I really love football and like the tactics behind football. So like right now, the manager for the team, he manages the team, he watches from the sideline and then he coaches midweek. We've bought like cameras where we're going to video the games for YouTube. And it's the same cameras that like Man City use and Burnley use and all Wolves use the top team. So after the game, I'm going to be able to give him a video, 90 minutes, really good footage of the game. He can then watch it back, rewind, pause, see how the defense, he may not have seen how the defense was doing something because he was watching the attackers, you know? So like, it's going to help his coaching to the team get to the next level too, you know, because he's going to have this footage of the team where usually the game finishes and all you have is your memory. Now we can watch the game back. We can even give the game to the players, you know, because when you're playing in the middle of the pitch, it's hard to see around you and like realize how big the pitch is or realize how your body shape was or whatever. If you can now watch yourself back and see the mistakes you made or how you could have done things different, the players we feel like are going to also just improve dramatically too. Whereas our opposition, they turn up, they play, and two weeks later, they, or like, let's say three months later, they have no recollection of this game. Whereas I can give this video to the guy, I can watch back and see how he's developed from January to April. You know, So like, what I want to sell in the video is uh, basically um, not just the entertainment side, like the fights and the documentation of the team talks, but I also want to sell about like the improvement that players can make via analysis, kind of the same way how I do in poker, you know? So I want to like really tackle it from this kind of strategical, technical point of view of how can we exploit this? How can we improve this part? How can we improve that part? And putting this out every week as a story and journey, I hope to have fans who, you know, if we get 200 fans in the first video, that's fine, you know, because over six years, seven years, if, if we keep improving, hopefully that fan base will be almost addicted to the storyline, just as how I'm addicted to the storylines of these other YouTube teams, you know? Um, so yeah, that's kind of how, how I see it uh, being. Yeah, I, I, it's super, super powerful. And I, I'm excited, man. Honestly, I think that's like a dream, dream passion project. How much of that had to do with you hitting this million dollar plus score, crushing everything and sort of, is this sort of like, all right, I'm going to relax and do a passion project. Or is this something you were going to do always? Like, how did you wake up and have this idea? Well, um, I've always been thinking about doing it. Um, 
I, I've been living in different places. I, I usually live in a place for three years. I lived in Spain for three years. Then I lived in Budapest for three years. And now I've lived in London for three years. So I was always planning to leave London this year. But because of online poker, there's only so many places you can live and play poker. So I can't move back to Spain. I can't go to Italy. I can't go to France. I can't go to New York. I can't go to Australia. Lots of places I'd love to live in as a human being. I can't live, you know. And uh, one of the places I haven't lived in in my adult life is my hometown, Newcastle. So I want to move back and experience my hometown as an adult because I loved it as a kid. Like I, I genuinely loved living in my hometown as a kid, but I have not experienced living as an adult in Newcastle. So I'm planning on going back for three years. And, you know, I was saying, well, what can I do as a project alongside this to enjoy the city even more? And uh, yeah, football and uh, is my passion, uh, even more so than poker. So it makes sense to uh, to do this alongside. It, it's, al- it's also, I just, the last thing I'll point out, I, I know you got to go because we have so many questions. We're not even getting to really any. So I apologize people out there. Maybe you can take a look and answer some on Twitter, reply to a few later at some point. But uh, I will say, what's that? We can do 10 more minutes. Fine. Oh, great. All right, good. I, I'm, I'm not quitting you, so you got you to gotta tell me when to go. Um, I would say I, it's very rare because nowadays so much history, so many clubs. Like, look at the NFL. Look at the Major League Baseball. Look at the Premiership. Look at the Bundesliga. These clubs have so much history, but someone started somewhere, right? The clubs started. There was a vision. There was someone that said, I'm going to start a club, you know, big city. Okay, it's easier. You start, maybe get some money. Maybe now you're a very wealthy person, buys a club for $500 million or $200 million or a billion. But to actually start in modern day era to like build a franchise or a club from, from scratch, do you know any s- stories like this in the last decade or 20, 30 years that a club has really been built from you know, literally nothing and come into like, is there any club like that? That's, that's- no, not from this level. A lot of clubs get bought in like tier four for like 10 million or 1 million or 3 million, but nothing from this level. Um, but then again, you know, YouTube is quite new, you know, like maybe there's teams who will be there in say five, six years who are already on that journey. Like hashtag United are a very big club in uh, London or Essex and they're doing the same strategy and they've been going for like five years before us. Um, yeah, there's also going to be a competition between different media teams as well, YouTube teams, you know, like there's a lot of competition and who is the best team and there's a lot of matches and stuff going on there. Um, like, yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, there's nothing being done yet like this, but it doesn't mean that uh, there won't be multiple who do this. Um, and yeah, and it all started when I was 15. It's the same team. Uh, the journey's just been slow. Oh, it's been good, a good slow journey to where we are now. And then now I'm, you know, helping take back over the guy with with the guys. It's not like I'm taking over. They have a committee and they have a manager and they have a uh, a treasurer and they have, um, you know, a secretary. All this kind of stuff. You know, I'm just coming back in and helping all their jobs be a little bit easier. So, um, will you be? What will be your official position within this organization? Um, I'll be funding it, I guess, making things a bit easier financially, and I'll be involved a little bit everywhere. So, like, I won't be the manager. But I'll be working with the manager, like about like helping him uh, with like the the footage in terms of the media. Like I won't be doing the recording or the editing, but I'll have like a, I'll be involved in the vision of how I want it to be. You know, I'm a little bit of a control freak. It's like with Bitby, I've always been involved in like everything. You know, like I've always been. In, I've never missed a meeting, or I've always been involved in every single thing, whether it be social media. Uh, marketing whether it be game selection whether it be strategy whether it be content whether it be website like i've always been involved in every single bit so i'm not a big fan of delegating i like to be 
Um, I like people to do things, but I like to do it with them. You know, it's like they have like responsibility, but I give them like a vision and give them support, I guess. Um, so I'll, I will try to do similar thing. I think. I can see it now. 2025, you know, the league below uh, battling in a playoff spot to get in the premiership. You're the manager and, uh-huh. and uh, you got this, uh, this, this story. I could say we, we heard it first, even though I, I did see you on Instagram and, and alluding and talking about it, but very cool. I, like I said, I mean, and listen, a different, different lifetime. I would love to be involved in some way. Cause I, I think it's an amazing project and I love soccer and I love all this. Like kind of, it's like, you're like playing, build your, uh, what's that, that game used to be popular. It's like manager, club manager, like, you build your own team on, on remember that Did you football manager. what was it called football manager yeah like you yeah kind of- i mean it's still it's huge game now i still play it like it's like i play it a lot myself uh yeah it's huge it's huge like in, in england especially it's a huge game yeah, um, that's sort of what you're doing you're playing like a real life football manager yeah, build- that's how a lot of people a lot of people uh, describe it as yeah exactly that's um, very very cool yeah. uh what degree did you study at university and has it helped you in any way? Uh, I was a journalist. Uh, so I did journalism at university and then it's helped me in terms of, you know, I do a lot of blogs and a lot of writing and uh, stuff like that. So it helps me in that way. But um, yeah, often, you know, often you don't really realize the stuff that you've learned. Like it's probably taught me stuff, which I just don't consciously realize it's taught me, you know? So like, I believe anything you've done in the past has always helped you get to the next step. So like studying, studying when I was 15 years old, 14 years old, it was done for a reason, you know, it was to get to the next step. And it taught me stuff now, which I don't remember it taught me, but like your whole identity and DNA is built up of every, of subconscious things that you don't realize that you've learned, you know? Um, so so yeah, I'm sure it has helped me in ways. There's nothing which I can really consciously say that writing has helped me in this way or the other, you know? Um, yeah, maybe For in like sure. politics and like worldview, we have to do a lot of research on like polit- journalism's a lot about like world affairs and stuff. So it helped me grow up a little bit and uh, see the world a bit bigger, I think. What, what, was your, what was your aha moment? Um, being asked here like did you ever have a moment that in poker it clicked like i think so many people make the the mistake on thinking about their running bad when they lose a bust the tournament because a lot like even people that i would be surprised not just recreationals but sort of you know rags or people i talk they're like oh, i run so bad you know i bust ace king to queens or ace king to ace queen with you know they, they get down to 12 10 blinds and they bust the tournament and they're like thinking they're running bad but really you know the game's won and lost in the trenches you win the war winning those small blind big blind jamming in a spot where you know you have 20 bigs in the cutoff and you, you could you know finding these creative ways or, or ways that like obviously the best players in the world are doing stuff they're finding ways to win pots they're doing other things that others aren't so w- when did it, something click for you where you sort of uh whether it was a moment like that and in a realization in poker or just something about life that was like very powerful do you have any moment in your poker journey that stands out as like an epiphany on how you approach the game or anything that turned turned you from being maybe good to great yeah, I had, I had two things, I think. I mean, I think the first one was that I realized that people really like to fold in big spots. Um, in cash games, especially, people like to find a reason to fold. Um, so when I was, this was in like 2013, 14, 15 years, like for like three years or so, people would love to fold. And if you put enough pressure on them, they would only generally call with a certain hand class. So they may, So basically my whole strategy was... If they can fold aces, if, sorry, if I can make them fold aces, I will bluff every hand in my range. So 
I, I would overbluff massively trying to make people fold basically their entire range. So basically, I, I think that in most spots, people would have folded aces, you know, with 100 big blinds deep. And obviously, it depends on the exact spot. If the board is ace, xx, they're not folding aces, obviously. But if I believe it's unlikely they have a, uh, a hand like a two, like I said, the board is 10, 7, 5, 3, 2. If it's unlikely they have 5, 2, and 10, 3, and all these kind of hands, it's more likely they have jacks, queens, kings, or aces. I would basically just. I would bluff even if I have, say, jack-10 myself, right? So if I have a hand with loads of showdown value, I would go all out making them fold everything, essentially. I would never take my showdown value. I would bluff my entire range to make people fold their entire ranges. And that was a big thing for, like, three years. I made a lot of money just stealing pots, which I probably shouldn't have stolen. But then it changed around. I had a very, very, very aggressive image for a long time. And I had to go kind of the other way around and kind of, be more greedy and not bluff so much the second thing was about extra lives i realized that uh if you have 10 big blinds and i have 10 big blinds and we flip and i lose a flip i can't do anything about that but if i can have 12 big blinds when you have 10 big blinds then when i lose the flip i can spin up these two big blinds so like every big blind is an extra life so every pot you play if you play it better than the other person you build up these extra lives like a game show and then when you do do these flips which are inevitable you have these like extra tokens you can just cash in and be like oh well, i have five big blinds left you know like imagine you play the tournament where if you lose a flip you can you get like an extra five big blinds and you get like four of these that would be you know, you'd always use your five big blinds and people would win tournaments from these extra five big blind chips so i was like well i'm just gonna work hard to gain these extra lives so that if i flip against uh player one two three four in this spot i will have more big blinds left in general than he will have left because i would have really gained these extra lives so i can't work i can't you know i can't win ace king against jacks every time but i can have these extra lives if i put the effort in kind of thing and i would win tournaments from having two big blinds and people would be like wow such a look box you went from having two big blinds to win and i'd be like yeah okay you can you can think it's luck but i'm gonna think it's skill do you know what i mean or like approaching it like that was like the biggest thing i think it meant that i was more focused in sessions it meant my mental game was stronger i never punted off a tournament i never like was blase you know i just really went for every single pot kind of thing i think european was the one who really taught me this he just he fights so hard and he's such like a hard player to play against for sure uh what is your favorite poker moment favorite poker moment would have been uh i mean it'll sound like bollocks but my favorite poker moment has been success of uh players i've staked getting out of makeup and uh winning money for themselves so like someone winning the sunday million or someone winning a championship or like reeling someone on a live final table who's part of the community like i get way more satisfaction out of that than i do out of myself winning i think it's because when you win yourself it's very exhausting if you've played for 12 hours and you, you have these ups and downs afterwards it's almost like a relief it doesn't feel like oh this is great it's like fuck that's over i've won you know but if someone else wins you kind of like watch them with a beer or watch them with a packet of Maltesers or whatever and you're like really enjoying the experience of, of their experience when you win yourself it's like a stressful situation almost it's hard to enjoy your own wins a lot of the time um but yeah i, I really like watching european and elmerick's winning because i'm usually watching with a beer and like maybe writing to them on discord and like having fun or whatever you know so like that's what i really really enjoy from uh poker what do you think about Twitch uh, and poker and YouTube like content and stuff? Well, what's your thoughts on that for, for uh, poker right now? I'm not sure if you know like my history with Twitch and poker, but basically 2000, 
14, 15, uh, 2014, I used, to, I used to Twitch once a week on uh, Coco on Twitch every Wednesday. I used yeah. to have like 1.5K followers or viewers every week. Uh, it was via, via PokerStrategy.com where I worked for. They, they had like 8 million members. So like we, we started, instead of having the sessions on uh, PokerStrategy, we moved them to Twitch. Uh, or like we moved my weekly coach into Twitch. Um, and I, I was building up a really good fan base here, or like a really good followership, and people would come every week. And then I got we got a message from Twitch saying we're going to end poker because it's gambling, and you're not allowed to do this anymore. So this was a, this was very gutting. Then I think it was like two months later, uh, Twitch poker was launched and it exploded, and people started getting followers like Jason Somerville, all this kind of stuff. So I had this very bitter feeling with Twitch that they kind of fucked me off when I would have been not because I was the best Twitcher or because I was the best player, but I would have been at the top of the Twitch at the time just because I'd, I I was the first one in on Twitch, first, if that makes yeah. sense. So, like, um, so yeah, I, I think I would have had it. But then again, you know, like maybe other things in my career would have changed because of right. that anyway. So, yeah, I mean, Twitch is cool, but I can't – I don't see myself going back now because of uh, – because of what happened, you know. So interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's uh, that's so you were the right. You were the perfect place at the perfect time, but then almost like too early by a minute, and then it yeah. Was, yeah, that's very. That's just that's strange, and and that's. I'll try to find a video of you. I'll try to find a video of me twitching in 2014 and send it to you. Uh, yeah. I, so poker does poker strategy. Do they still have a Twitch? Do they do any? Do you work with them still? No, I stopped working for them in 2016. Um, I worked there in Spain in their head office. I was um, doing the education. So like, I hired Jungle Man, hired all these kind of people. Like, if Jungle Man made a video, I would like watch the video and make sure it was good enough in terms of like quality of audio rather than strategy, but also looking at the strategy too. Um, and then we sold the company, or they sold the company um, for like 50, 60 million to iPoker. And, Poker strategy uh, sold that? Yeah, we, we were, I mean, we, we were the most profitable poker company in the world at the time. We had 8 million members. It was huge. And like Philip Grusom, Igor Kurganov, all these people, they were all given $50 from Poker Strategy. And Poker Strategy gave them free content from like coaches like myself and whoever else. And then they tried to turn that $50 into, say, 1000 And when they raked, Poker Strategy were given money off the sites. So like Igor Kurganov, Grusom, Oli Shemion, all these people, they all came because PokerStrategy gave them $50 for free when they were 18 and then coached them how to get to like a beginner's level, you know? Um, yeah, Tobias Reichermeyer, Piers Heinz, all these people. And if you think, if, if you always hear about the Germans about being so successful, this is all because of PokerStrategy. Um, so yeah, it was a huge, 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 huge site. And uh, yeah, after Black Friday, we sold the site to iPoker and then I left the site and became a full-time poker player then. Wow. So yeah. Anyway, yeah. I have a tennis match, so I'm gonna have to uh, gonna have to go, unfortunately. But um, okay. Yeah, well, I'll that, time. Like I said, I appreciate it very much. We're gonna have to. We'll we'll have to, you know, do us another thing one day, another podcast that we we covered a lot. I just want to real quick, uh, just have you pick the winner. So let me just copy this link. Anyone who's followed the instructions is elbow, just tell me. And I got a jam here, so just tell me when. Count it down, and then I'll let you ride off, and, and good luck in your match. So tell me when someone's going a hundred nine dollar party poker ticket. So what do I do? I say when. Uh, yeah. Can you see my screen or no? Yeah, I see. Yeah. Uh, so it says pick winner from retweets. Type or paste the URL. Yeah. Uh, okay. Three, two, one.
All right, it's loading. Someone's going to get the 109 ticket courtesy of pads and party poker. It's taking its time, and there it is. We'll message him. Pads will let you run. I appreciate you, man. Thank you for the time. Good luck in the WPT. I'll see you on the streets, and I'll be sending my BitBee application soon. So give it a give it a wink for me. Set, push it through, all right? Nice one. Thanks, bro. All right, man. Patrick yeah. Leonard, everyone, give him a follow. Instagram, you can see him across the board. He's very active on the social fronts. And, again, you can see uh, we're going to message there on Twitter. Uh, the schedule for Party Poker, 100 million guaranteed. I will be playing on Twitch later today, jeffgirlspoker.tv. Pads will be playing. You can watch him in the client. And we are literally uh, very, very lucky to have him. He is definitely one of the best, if not the best online poker player in the world, currently ranked number two he's been as high as number one and puts in a lot of work a lot of volume trusted member of team party poker you can see here one of the ambassadors of the game he does so much for the site i mean it's absolutely it's absolutely crazy to think what he what he's done what he's accomplished how hard working he has got so much positive things to say uh thanks for all the questions he will go through and answer some he said you know he's going to take a look we couldn't get to all of them i see a lot a lot of questions you guys were all eligible if you followed the instructions and uh that is going to end up for this i've got a special guest next week we got puya the rapper songwriter musician on bill perkins book die with zero is out on july 28th we're gonna have him on the podcast coming up here as well and uh all in all guys this was a treat thank you so much we'll see you soon much love and uh podcast i believe number 78 in the books we'll see you guys soon thank you thanks for listening to this episode it was brought to you in partnership with party poker go to partypoker.com to play tournaments cash games and improve your poker game Make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear all of my future episodes.